All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. I got news for you, pal. You ain't leading but two things right now. Jack and shit. Jack left town. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. What was that rocket? What rocket? I was just in my office and I heard a rocket. Describe the rocket, sir. Does this mean we're not friends anymore? Episode 132 of the Hordes of Chaos on the Metal Town Radio Podcast. We are glad to have you all joining us today. Got a lot of stuff to get to today. Cool. As always. As always. Yeah, we always bring... We bring the shit. We bring it hard. We bring... We, we bring... I don't know. We bring snacks. <laughs> snacks. And we eat and we drink. Oh my god. We're luscious. We are. The other day... Um, or last week, we always stop like once a week um, to this local liquor uh, store. You know, it's a small business, Ben's Liquors, and we specifically go to this one even though it's not right by our house because we like the owner and they always order what we want to carry. And He's actually really good. Like, the minute I was asking about a certain beer, he was on top of that shit. And like, I guess... At some point, like, this particular beer that I drank, uh, the Heffenweiss, like, I've seen it at other places. Like, we went down to D.C. for a show once, and they literally had that on shit on tap. We were on tap. Now, other places in Maryland, it's not as common. Like, we found it once. I think Neko found it up in, um, what's that, Robella Road at one point when she was up there a couple times. Oh, Reds or something. Yeah. It was it was really it was a really cool place. It they was, had food and it was like a it was a deli. butcher shop. Yeah. A deli, a wine store, and um they carried a lot of Like uh, that was the very imp- first place that mm-hmm. you had found in this beer that I They drank. carried a lot of imported beers because they were kind of like a specialty Eclectic, yeah. Because we, I mean, even the steaks now, they were quite expensive steaks, but even the steaks that we got there were phenomenal compared to, like, what you get at a regular grocery store. Yeah, I think they seasoned them and everything. They seasoned them. They, you know, it's, like, 
farm to table. They have, it's a local herd that they butcher, which is sad sounding, but you know what I mean. Like, it's not like they've got a bunch of, like, overly, um, hormoned cows and bulls that they, but anyway, they, you know, it's one of those things. It's a very hard industry. They were there for years, though. I think the, um, there was a retirement of one of the owners, and it was just, it's a hard thing to sustain, and I, I know you and I, um, well, that was the other thing. It was like, because it is a bit of a distance for us. Yeah, but, but like, they had a good gathering, because it was a small grocery store. But then too. you found the one in Canton, which was great, because that's like a huge place, and they have a lot of different foreign beers, like the ones. Oh, and remember when we were working in Hunt Valley, that gigantic wine store? Yeah. They had um, the big bottles. Yeah. Um,. But then, like, I don't know, there was, a, there was sort of, like, a shortage of them because they had run out, I guess. Because even at the place that we go to now, it took him, like, another month to get them in there. But uh -huh. at the time, he was like, I can get you the cans. I just can't get the bottles right now. I was like, well, let's shoot for the cans and see if we get those in. Because I had not had them in cans at that point. And when they came in, I'm like, yep, that's it. And so I bought, like, a case of that shit right away. And then the bottles came in, and more cans came in. Every week we're there, and now recently um, they got the pumpkin in that Neko likes, and she's been drinking that along with her White Claw stuff. Yeah, my claws love. <laughs> um, so getting into our music today, we've got uh, new stuff from uh, Necronautical, Permanent, Sacrificial Slam, Slab, excuse me, from Against PR, Alchemy of Flesh. Uh, what we got here? Evil Spell, provided by Grand Sounds. Killings in there. New Sodom. Uh, new stuff on three separate bands that have made my best of list this year. Uh, one being, we played some tracks uh, a few episodes back from Oxygen Destroyer, but they now have the. We love Oxygen Destroyer. They now have that album on release, so that is. We're going to hear another track from that. Toxic Ruins in there. That's not one of my best of the year, but it's damn good. Fire. Uh, Therfing, I don't know how you pronounce that per se. I, I've, I've followed this band for quite a few years. Pagan, Viking, Black Metal. Uh, their new record is fucking phenomenal. Wormwitch with their brand new record. Two records in a row that make my best of list. So they're they're kicking ass. Uh, Wormwitch did? Yep. Uh, we saw them over at the depot. Was it depot? No, it was... Uh, or was it the one that's... The on smaller the one on the street. Uh, I thought that one's the depot and the other one's Metro Gallery. No, this, this, what's the one off of, um, Depot's, like, Maryland Avenue. This other one's a much smaller club. It's, like, you walk in, go down the steps, and there's just this bar here. It's where, uh, Manthrax played. I can't remember the name of it, though. Oh, Sidebar? Sidebar, yep. We saw them there, and we were right up front there, and we were kicking ass with them when they were touring last Oh, yeah, I got some pictures of that. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, the Rock Luck has a lot of killer shit in it. Uh, obviously, Neko's Pick of the Week, which we were talking about a few days ago. Uh, I had not realized the band had actually done that song. Isn't that crazy? Uh, but I got some other cool stuff in there we haven't played in a while, and stuff from Music Records and Quabar PR in there as well. But let's kick it all off. Uh, black Metal Block coming at you right away. Necronautical, Permanent, and...
everybody, this is Mr. Joshua Gray, your live gameplay DJ, live weekday mornings, every day, but hump day, playing Mortal Kombat or other games occasionally and featuring a number of different artists. So come on by, grab your breakfast, and enjoy some fatalities. Mr. Joshua Gray on YouTube, Monday, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays, 8 noon to the moon. And you're listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko on Metal Tavern Radio. Everybody talked about it. Every show talked about it. You violated the number one rule for any professional athlete, and that is no matter what is said, no matter what is thrown at you, you don't go into the stands. The narrative had changed. It was all about us, the players. Ron, Steve, J.O., it's their fault. They were being thugs. They were acting out of line. Right, all of a sudden, my character is in question. It wasn't just the amount of people that were saying it. It was the stature of the people who were saying it. These are thugs. And everybody else signing off. Yeah, you know, rap music and this. Yeah, a little clip there from the uh, Netflix doc, Untold, Malice at the Palace. And talking with Necto earlier this week, uh, you don't remember that event at all. Not much, no. Now, granted, we're both not, like, the biggest NBA fans this day, really, in age, but I think both of us are pretty much on the same page with, like, the Jordan era is pretty much our height of that. <laughs> I, I remember, like, when I was watching, because I used to watch basketball a lot, but I was, like, in seventh, eighth grade, and I guess that would be maybe, like, 92, 93, 94. Right. And I don't even know what got me interested in basketball. Um, I just know... Like, uh, Malone was, like, one of my favorite players. Carl I Malone. Yeah, I don't know why. I The mailman? Yeah, I just... And, um, my... My grandparents... now Nowadays, it's it's not odd, you know, but back then, my grandparents... Uh, oh, God, they might even been sixth grade, because my grandparents moved in with us when we were in ninth grade, so that was, like, 94, uh, 95, but they didn't have cable. And, you know, back then, it's a big deal, like, oh, my God, you don't have cable? There's, like, you know, four channels that you could have, maybe ten if you had, like, really good reception. Nowadays, nobody has cable. They just scream. And, but the, none of that existed back then. But they had a TV in the basement, and um, they had rabbit ears, you know. I don't think any of the kids out there know what rabbit ears are. But, probably not. And it was one of those big, like, console wooden TVs. Now they probably look at it and go, what the fuck is this? Well, it was one of those TVs that, um, even for the 90s, it was You don't know true TV until you're having to move the ears yeah. around to get signal. <laughs> so they had the rabbit ears, and um, it was one of those old console TVs that are wood and weigh, like, you know, 500 pounds. I don't even know how it got into the basement. And it was the ones that did this, like, where you had to turn a knob. Like, the top was, like, UHF and the bottom was VHF. And we had, like, 2, 11, 13, 22, 45, and 54. That's all she got. Channel 54. Mm -hmm. So um, that's all that she got. And... I would, you know, they lived across the street from me when I was um, younger, and I would go over there just randomly to bother them, and they always would, like... Watch face basketball? Well, my grandfather always used to play basketball, and um, so he would always watch it. And then in the basement, you could only get, like, a couple of channels, clearly, even when you're screwing with the rabbit ears. And their rabbit ears um, were pretty high-tech because it, it was actually, like, a box 
with the rabbit ears, the two antenna that stick up. Then there was like a tuner thing. Yeah. And then like a little circle behind the rabbit ears. But then they had another um, like cord. And you could take it and kind of. Oh like, yeah, it's like an extended mm -hmm. ground wire. Or some so shit. you would take it and kind of put it up in the corner, and that's how they they would get. Now, our house was built in 54, the one that you and I currently live in, and we still have an antenna on top of it, which is a over-the-air antenna. And because we live so close to Television Hill, which is where everything used to broadcast from, what people did around here was they would, have, they would put these giant antennas, and then there was a, a cord that went down into, like, into the roof, and that antenna would connect to your television in your living yeah, room. Yeah. So you didn't need the rabbit ears, but they didn't have that over there. Now, granted, a lot of this shit went out the window in the 80s because, you know, everybody... Shit changed. Yeah. HBO happened. Mm -hmm. HBO happened, but they did not want to pay for cable. Yeah. You know, they were just, you know, no thank you. And they were fine with the few channels that they watched. Um that is where I got into basketball because I'd go over there and there's only so much to do even, you know. Well, the thing is, I know that once Jordan retired and, you know, obviously there were still a few players scattered out. I think Malone played a few years after that. Mm -hmm. uh, I was actually a big Tim Duncan fan, even though I wasn't a Spurs fan. I was mm -hmm. a fan of his when he was at Wake Forest. So Duncan played well towards 2005 and six, I think, before he retired. Mm -hmm. Uh and then one of the other players that was from the the golden era, I'd call it, uh, was Reggie Miller for the Indiana Pacers. Mm -hmm. And he had a lot of massive great games that you would see him play against the uh, Knicks and everything else in the playoffs. Well, towards the end of Reggie's years in the, in the NBA, he, you know, they were assembling a team around him with younger players who were hungry to, you know, win championships and try to get Reggie that ring. It's almost like a John Elway moment. We're going to try to get Reggie his his championship, you know. Mm -hmm. um, they, so they got, like, uh, Jerome O'Neal, who actually was drafted by my Portland Blazers and then ended up being traded because that's what Portland does whenever we have good players. Whenever, whenever. We're probably going to lose, like... yeah, we're probably going to lose Lillard at some point because we're just not giving the guy enough help. But anyway, on other notes, uh, so they get O'Neal from Portland. And then they had, like, one of the most controversial but best defensive players in the NBA, Ron Artest, and another controversial player in Steven Jackson, who's very volatile but a great player as well, uh, to the team. And they actually have a very solid team, you know, one that could actually win a championship. Uh, in 2003, they end up playing the Detroit Pistons, but they end up losing in uh four games to two or something like that. Like in six games they lost. So uh you know, and it was like one of those other things because Detroit had Ben Wallace and a lot uh Rashid um I forget his last name, but he, he actually played with the Wizards early on in his career. But they had uh their own good team there. I think Detroit went on to win that year, the whole thing. <clears throat> but their their series, you know, was, you know, one of those physical fighting and you know just talking shit and it's just how it is because Detroit's always been kind of known to have physical teams going back to Dennis Rodman and those guys from the bad boys club um so 2004 rolls around and you know Indiana has kind of chip on its shoulders so it's a regular season game on November 4th uh in Detroit and 
the Pacers are just destroying the Pistons here. Like it's like they're making their selves known. Like okay, we got beat in the playoffs last year, but we're gonna kick your ass tonight. And they they just they're routing them. So at this point, with like maybe a couple minutes left in the game, for whatever reason, I don't know why Stephen Jackson decides he's gonna tell Ron Artest, go ahead, get your foul in, buddy, because Ron is known for being a, a kind of a uh, aggressive dirty player I, I hate saying dirty but that's kind of what it is like he always wants to have one of those hard fouls that you know he wants to send a message or whatever it's something similar to what Dennis Rodman used to do with the Bulls and with the Pistons back in the day you know he was kind of like a guy that was always a uh, loose cannon at some point so Ron pushes our fouls Ben Wallace really hard uh, Wallace clearly takes uh, exception to it and uh, Wallace is a big dude, so, like, I'm not sure why Ron would even try to fuck with him, but, uh, you know, Wallace is trying to go after him, and at this point, Ron is kind of, like, soaking it in. Like, he knows he's gotten under their skin, so he goes onto the scores table and lays down. He's kind of, like, showboating a little bit or just chilling, trying to stay away from the melee because the rest of the teams are trying to keep each other separate. And, and then all of a sudden... As Reggie Miller says, as he recalls, because Reggie did not play. He was actually in a suit that night because he had hurt his finger. So, But he says, I just saw it coming. And it was in slow-mo. Oh, my goodness. And his cup with beer just flies down, nails Ron while he's on the table. Ron springs up and rushes up into the stands, passes the one guy that actually threw the fucking cup, and what? starts to, like, punch this other dude that was next to him. Now, of course, some of the other teammates for Indiana are, like, trying to, like, go up there as well and get, like, you know, either to stop Ron from doing what he's doing or join to the the fracas here. Yeah. So, after everything's kind of calmed down, Ron's back down on the main floor. He's starting to walk away. And one of this other dude who's, like, a longtime Pistons fan who has, like, season tickets every year is now on the court. And he's been drinking a little bit. And as they're coming close together, this, this fan, like, literally starts to kind of rear up and, like, put his hands in the fist as if he wants to fight Artest. Artest simply just knocks him the fuck out. Uh, and apparently it's so bad that this guy had to be put on a stretcher and taken in the ambulance to the hospital. Uh, now... Here's where things are very interesting about this doc, and I'm going to get into an article I'm reading from a Pistons fan, which is kind of misleading, but at the time that this shit happened, and this is one of the things that I've been kind of talking about with the whole politics thing with the media and everything else, is you have to be careful with the way that media portrays things, because they know people are emotional, they know people are pretty much are on the fly. We, we all wear our emotions on our sleeves. So, you, you know, we and I know very well, like even with social media, we see an article or we see a headline, we're like, oh, we already give our opinion on it. We're really fast mm-hmm. on that. And sometimes we do it too fast because we don't know all the details. And so at the time, the question isn't, was our test wrong for rushing up into the stands to fight fans? That's clearly a wrong thing to do for any athlete at any point. Um... They even mention it, you know, that, it, you know, the way that they should conduct themselves is better than the way that fans should. Now, I'm going to have my own opinion on that in a minute, but. So, during this, this thing, after this happens, the media is now, like, really laid it on thick with the NAM Pacers players, and they're, like, calling them thugs, and they're, like, 
saying that Stern needs to send an example and you know make note of this. This is like long before the Ray Rice shit from the NFL. And uh, so in the media, they're just being drug over the coals. Like they're they're just everything's collapsing around them. Uh, suspensions are being handed. Wallace, who played for the Pistons, he got like six games. He got like the less, I think. Whereas uh, Jermaine O'Neal and Artest, I think they were like season-ending suspensions. I think. Um, this doc, though, shows you more than what we saw back then in terms of, like, the footage and some of the things that were said and even from the investigators involved. Uh, it was initially told to us at the time that really the Pacers were the ones that overreacted and they are the ones that really started the fight and all this stuff when, when in reality that wasn't the case. Like, it was actually the Pistons fan. And this article I've been reading, this guy kind of, he is a Pistons fan, so he tries to say, he says, there were a number of things that were glossed over that I found interesting. Now, this is where we're going to disagree. He says, there are a lot of woe is us, the crux that the Pacers would have won the championship that year, if not for all the players' suspensions. That's not quite, you know, it's true in the sense that he's right, that they did play the Pistons in the playoffs that year, and they, and... The Pacers did beat the Pistons, but they didn't win the championship that year. However, it's not really a woe is me. They're, the whole point of this doc was to kind of set the, the shit straight, that it wasn't just the Pacers that were to blame for what happened that night. Um, here's the other big fact about this. There was a lot about the mental problems that Tess has, was having in the weeks leading up to the incident. He was even saying, looking for a way to stop playing. Our test in this doc, was very honest and he was very uh he owned up to a lot of his shit he was like i should have never done this i never should have done that my mind wasn't right uh and it was clear to me some of the things that Artest was doing leading up to the game that he kind of like me I, I think he's adhd or he has bipolar like issues like he was uh and he was known for being like i said a guy that would just kind of like he was a loose cannon. Like, there was shit that he would do when he played for other teams that, uh, you know, kind of got people upset. So, the fact that we now address mental health much more seriously now we're supposed to because of some of the other stuff we see across the nation in terms of uh, police and, you know, civilian interaction, uh, <clears throat> it's, not a, it's not something that... Like, I saw one person make a comment on this article that, like, you know, our test is really just a showboat. I'm like, dude, you're just doing exactly what most of us have done most of our life, and that is you're mocking a guy who probably had mental health issues, and he needed to be addressed back then. If we had taken it more serious back then, that shit may not even happen. And that's the problem. Like, people are still trying to, like, just say, oh, it's just fake. And it's, it's not fake. Mental health issues exist. And, uh... So, but the thing about this stock is that, you know, our tests and Stephen Jackson, they're all very uh, cordial in the way that they take responsibility for what they did because they all felt guilty that Miller was unable to get his championship. He retired that season, the end of that season. Uh, and that was, you know, Reggie was kind of hoping they would be able to finish it off with the championship, but they didn't get it done. And a lot of it had to do with how they responded in that, in that arena that night. But the the thing that got glossed over, in my opinion, 
and this is something that I've talked about for years in all sports is fan accountability. Uh, you and I have been to a number of games, NFL, uh, even just oh, yes. college games and stuff like that. We conduct ourselves 100% fine. You know, we, we scream and yell about how happy or sad we are. We take, we've taken abuse from Ravens fans with the Broncos losing there. Uh, but we don't get in fights about it. We don't, you know, we don't sit there and try to pick fights or throw beers at people and shit like that. And that's the problem that fans have. And it, it should never be acceptable. This is one of the things I hate about how the media portrayed this or the league itself. Is they're like, oh... Well, the fans pay. That means they can do whatever the fuck they want. Well, that's not true, that's and it not should true. not be true. And it's, it's embarrassing that anybody would defend that. Now, granted, these guys in the stands that night, uh, most of them got their tickets taken away for good. Uh, the guy that they ended up investigating, who they, I told you the lead investigator knew him, he lived next door to this guy. Oh, shit. Who started the fracas with the beer throwing. The fracas. He actually served jail time for that. Oh, for throwing the beer? Yeah. Because it started a fucking riot, just about. You know, it's just is insane. So I don't know, but like I told you, they were interviewing that guy, and he was kind of like just he he had no remorse about it at all. Like I'm like, dude, you're an idiot. But it's it's a, that's the thing that like the go, one guy got knocked out. They interviewed him, and he kind of sat there and kept going, "Well, I should have never had my tickets taken away. I was, you know, I was a loyal fan." And, I wasn't trying to fight Ryan Chaz. And I said, well, the video says differently, dude. You're a fucking liar. So he was, like, up in his face. Yeah. For one, that guy didn't even belong in the fucking court. <laughs> no fans belong in the fucking court. Mm -hmm. And this guy down there, and then you can see clear video, he's clenching up his fist like he's going to fight. And I'm like, you're not there to hug him. So, you're not there to give him a good pat on the back. Right. So, because that's the thing. That's how people. That's how fans in general are. They they get emboldened when one person starts a fight. Cause the minute our test run up ran up into the stands, but mm -hmm. that one dude, there was a couple other guys, including the beer throw, who came up behind him and tried to hit him. So that's how it is. It's like, oh, you're emboldened to go and fight when you have a bunch of other fucking people there. And this is the shit that we see with all the riots and shit. The same thing. If, if like, a group of people do it, all of a sudden more people join in because they think it's okay. It's ridiculous. I agree. So, yeah, that was a very sad moment in NBA history, and it changed a lot of things because that's when Stern came out and actually started making them make sure they wear suits when they get to, to arenas. Like, they, he changed no more of this, like, dressing with your pants half hanging down. Like, it was, like, a whole big deal. And the other issue, of course, was when Stern made his punishments, He there was no arbitrator. So this is why the Pacers kind of felt like they were being singled out in a way because Stern did it all himself. There wasn't anyone, there was no third party to, like, oversee all this. Uh, and who knows how much of the footage and stuff was there available at the time. So Stern was just going to make a point because he was trying to save his ass. And, of course, you know, because he didn't want, like, fans in general to be, like, abandoning the NBA because he decided to come down on the fans instead of the players. So I, he was just saving his own ass. And this is the problem with Stern is that he he's kind of like Goodell. Like, it's all about, oh, well, we got to save where our money's coming from. We can't, we can't treat the players fairly. We have to just make sure we're saving our asses financially. Mm -hmm. So it's really embarrassing. So David Stern, you should be ashamed. 
Um, yeah, so I, it, it was interesting. Anyway, you know, I told you this is like a part of a series that Netflix is doing now. We saw the one with the female boxer that we were watching. That's pretty it. crazy. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. It's almost like a 30 for 30, but it's been doing on Netflix. So certainly check it out. It's called Untold Malice at the Palace, and you'll get a refresher, and you get a different perspective on what happened that night. It was kind of eye-opening for me because I was one of those people that jumped on the players at the time saying, what a bunch of idiots and thugs, without really knowing the entire context. And that's the danger of how the media portrays shit because if you're only relying on one point of view, uh, it's bad. And that's sad that we have that. Well, it happens all the time. You can see, like, how the media can drive. Well, we saw it throughout the last five or six years with the politics mm -hmm. and the president and everything else. Because I, um, I'm trying, I think it was Washington Post, um, they print the same story, <clears throat> but based on the area, they tweak the headlines in a way that um, will make, so like if it's more of a Republican area, they'll like tweak the headlines a certain way, and if it's more of to a get Democrat, more mm -hmm. outrage, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just sad. It's for clicks and shit, and it's, <clears throat> you know, it's just, it's a sad way to do business, and that's why I've always, people say, well, no, the media is actually out for the people, and it's like, no, not, not anymore than that. It's all biased. They all have their own allegiances and how they want things. And we saw the fucking... I still say the night that Trump won the presidency, it was an eye-opener for me because I'm watching all these mainstream media outlets who are reporting the, the victor. They're, like, crying. Like, literally, like, mm -hmm. just, you know, stepping all over themselves in their puddles because they're like, oh, my God, this is how we are now. We got Trump as president. I'm like, dude, I get it. You don't really like the dude. You're probably not a Republican, but your job is to be as unbiased as as possible you're not supposed to act like a jackass on national tv and cry it's it's really embarrassing you're doing your job wrong and it also depended with um who you were uh watching mm -hmm. so if you're watching like the fox news network um it was the opposite it was the opposite it was right. like but then they were like well where is where is Clinton? So why isn't she out giving her concession speech right now? We hear she's back in her room crying and yeah. drinking. And I'm like, okay. Like, I mean, the, the hardest part for all of these um, politicians or, you know, people in the public eye is everything that happens to you is immediately fodder. So, like, uh, when we talk about people losing their jobs or whatever and they're like high profile people immediately as you were saying the opinions go out before you even know like what went on and a lot of times um like we we see with um broadcasters or whatever they're like yeah this person got fired and then there's all these speculations but a lot of the truth never comes out because of contracts or you know, and it's all rumors, and people are just, like, guessing. They're like, oh, yeah, they got fired because of this. So everything just gets smeared through the media all the time. And this, you know, Malice at the Palace is a perfect example of, okay, so 
everybody is just like, oh, we expect more from these players and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Whereas when you saw the players kind of like side and then you see like the full footage, you know, because you and I were talking about this, um, the footage that you see gets edited on the news, mm -hmm. you know, and it gets clipped. I, um, when I went to Hong Kong in 2000, it was at the end of 2019, it was right before the, the pandemic. Right. So number one, the pandemic was already happening in Hong Kong, but nobody was acting like there was any problem. Hong Kong just naturally, some people wear masks, some people don't just because that's how they are. Um, number two, remember at that time, you know, now everything's oversaturated with pandemic news, but there was a lot of political issues going on in Hong Kong. And there were, the people are like, it's so dangerous, and there's all these, there's all these protests that turn into riots, and, and they have to bring in the police and the army. Um, it's, it was the furthest thing from the truth, because yes, there were things that happened, and there was like one big one that happened on, um, on a college campus. But what I was noticing, because after we left Hong Kong and I would like look at the news and stuff, they're still reporting about these riots and these, these protests. Um, they were like showing the same footage and the same three pictures over mm -hmm. and over again. So we would actually get information from our agent while we were in port. They'd say there is a planned protest. So like these protests, I guess, I don't know if they have to apply for permits or whatever, but I was literally downtown Hong Kong and I saw one protest and it was like, they're playing a guitar and then they have, it's, it was so 70s, that, and they had a bullhorn and they're like talking. There was, it was not what you would, like if you, because my mom, she was terrified for me and She's like, oh, there's so many, so much problems going on in Hong Kong right now with the Chinese government. And I'm like, Mom, it is literally just like, a, it's like being in New York. It is a crowded city, and it's very expensive, and there, there, there's like no police, no military, nothing. It was just like being in a, a regular, you know, everyday city. Um, they did, they would advise like, hey, don't go when they, when they have their protest on this street, don't go down there. But it's a perfect example of what happened with the Malice in the Palace, where it's like they showed the same, like, the, the punch. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. all they were showing. Or the Rodney King thing. Like, you never see what happens before. All we saw was cops beating up a black mm -hmm. guy. And uh, granted, that was all wrong. That's but, wrong. But, but the reality is, that's how the media portrays things. We, we hear about it all the time. Like, oh, well, the cops shot this guy. Or they beat up this guy, but you never see like, oh, the guy was actually trying to go for the cop's gun. Or maybe the they were maybe they were resisting arrest so much that they, they right didn't. yeah and I, you know and I'm not giving the cops a pass because I've seen so many things where, um, especially since the invention of the camera phone, you see things. Remember that cop in Oakland who shot the guy who was already laying on the ground and he wasn't even yeah. doing. I mean, yeah. like shit like that. Yay, I'm glad that we have this, but the media never want, the media always wants to take and um, 
whatever is going to give you the bet, the biggest clicks, the biggest pop. Yeah. And that's the only thing I can take away from this is that at the time it was always about the players and their conduct, but not about the fans. Like the fans paid a price, but they paid a price through the legal system and through the uh, organization of the Pistons who took away their tickets. But you never heard how the media says, well, yeah, fans should really just be better. You know, we shouldn't be throwing beers or spitting on people, players. Because uh, all that shit happens. It does. And they say some very cruel things to these people. And it's like, we can be better than this. You can be a rival fan and a fan, you know, talking smack. But, like, some of the shit that I've seen said or done is just unnecessary. And it's like, that's, that's a, I don't really blame our test for wanting to go up there and beat someone's ass. Like, it was just unnecessary. You know, let the players handle their shit on the court. Let the refs handle whatever you know, fights that break out. There is no need for the fans to get involved in that at all. All right. Let's get back into some music. Uh, classic stuff from Poison Aspen here. Some brand new stuff from Toxic Ruin. But we're going to kick it off some brand new Oxygen Destroyer, as I promised. Yay! And I don't know about Jordan Company, but they love long album titles and long song titles. So this one's called... Enduring the maternal rage of the amphibious monstrosity. Amphibious monstrosity. <laughs> it's... <laughs> <laughs> is gone. One of London's oldest landmarks smashed like matchwood. Nothing has stopped this beast so far. Nothing. Not even point-blank cannon fire.
This is Toxic Ruin, and you're listening to Metal Tavern Radio. Toxic Ruin there with Defiler, of course. The intro they provided to us a long time ago through Vlad, uh, so much appreciated to those guys. So, last episode, we dove into our first part of our tier maker, best of the decade horror movies. We did the 70s. This week we're doing the 80s. And it's getting harder and harder because... uh, the amount of movies that we have to sit through is getting larger and larger. Uh, and this doesn't even include my own personal extended list. But uh, you and I, we talk about the stuff that you've seen and I've seen. And uh, ironically enough, we both watched The Wicker Man, the original, first time last night. And that's the 70s one. So we probably would have put that in that list at that point if we had seen it. Oh, it was so fucking great. Yeah. Uh, a lot of cool stuff in there that... Even I didn't know, because we'd both just seen the remake at that point with Nicolas Cage, so uh, watching the original was a lot of fun. So we did the 80s, and I think we're going to do it the same way we did the 70s. We'll just go from the bottom up. Um, So let me... So let me just give a rundown of the movies that we included on our list. So we have Halloween 3, Reanimator... City of the Living Dead, Fright Night, Pet Cemetery, The Hitcher, Lost Boys, Silver Bullet, Terror Train, Cannibal Holocaust, Spookies, Prom Night, Wolfen, Day of the Dead, Creep Show, Christine, Child's Play, The Fog, Puppet Master, The Fly, Pumpkinhead, Return of the Living Dead, The Blob, The Shining, uh, The Howling, Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, Evil Dead 2, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Thing, American Wolfman in London, Hellraiser, Poltergeist, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Whoa, 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 whoa. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Did I get that right? Warlock, Trick or Treat, Critters, Cujo, Friday the 13th, Sleepaway Camp, The Evil Dead, Near Dark, Night of the Demons, and The Stuff. To be clear to those listening, these are only the films that you and I have seen for sure. Uh, I know there are films that I've watched that you probably watched like in the background, not even knowing it. But for the ones you can remember, for the most part, these are the films that we both are recognized with. So we stick to that to our list for the sake of the mm-hmm. rankings. So, in the poor list, and I want to reiterate again... The way that we have these broken down by tiers is best, great, good, average, and poor. Now, all these films you and I will probably watch again with no problem. Just it just depends on our preference, really. So oh, yeah, like our, uh, you know, mood. Right, because like even if it's an average or poor list, it doesn't mean it's really a average or poor movie per se. It just means we wouldn't watch them as much as we'd watch the others. So go ahead and give me your poor list. Oh, uh, if it, okay, well, I'm, I'm looking. One at, is Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah. And the other one, I can't. Spookies. Spookies, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the funny thing about Spookies is, like, we do enjoy the little Joe Bob rap they did for it. Hey, Spooky! Hey, we 
watch Swoop Game. There's, okay, so, like, the story behind it was, it was, like, two different people actually directed it. So yeah. So it was, like, they had no direction, and... Like, the, the, the backstories are more interesting than the actual <laughs> movie itself. Now, granted, this movie, I remember when I first watched Spookies, like, back in the day, it was hard to find, like, on even on DVD or even being on replay. Like, you wouldn't really see it too often being replayed. And so, like, I don't know, probably about a couple of years ago, I found it on YouTube or something and watched it. And then, of course, Joe Bob picked it up on Shutter and they, you know, did a thing on it. Uh, finally, that's when you got to see it for the first time, much to your chagrin. Um, but that's the cool thing about Joe Bob. He always does these, like, backstories. You learn about the history of the movie, the act. Sometimes we'll have actors from the movies on the sets. So on my poor list, Spookies and Cannibal Holocaust also make it there. Hey! Now, Cannibal Holocaust, like, look, it's it's one of the first movies to do the found footage thing that we discussed in our horror trivia thing. And... So there's some cool things about it, obviously, but then there's the part with the killing the animals for real part that's, that's really disturbing. And the reality is, the movie itself, outside of some of the effects that they were using, it's not a very interesting story. It was low budget, of course. Uh, and that's probably why like, I wouldn't watch this film on the norm that often, because maybe I'll be, revisit it in like five years or ten years, because you know, I haven't seen it in a while, whatever, but... There's no desire for me to watch either Spookies or Cannibal Holocaust, uh, like, anytime soon. Uh, two other ones made my list in the poor, and that is Terror Train and uh, Prom Night. And, again, they're not horrible, horrible, but they're just not movies that would overtake anything else that I've seen. Alright, so what do you got in your average list? Um, Christine, The Hitcher... Night of the Demons, Terror Train, Return of the Living Dead, The Blob, I don't know what this is, City. Pumpkinhead, yep. and... City of the Living Dead. Is that the one with the, the two, tombstone? Yeah. Yeah, City of the Living Dead. So, I'm curious, because now... Christine, I can kind of understand. Um, some of the other ones I can understand. But the Hitcher, City of Living Dead, and Pumpkinhead. Those ones I'm kind of... Now, you don't remember much about City of Living Dead, so I can kind of give you a pass on that one. But the Hitcher with Rugger Hauer and Pumpkinhead are, like, really, really good. So I'm kind of curious why you have them kind of that low. Because I don't remember Pumpkinhead. Really? I mean, the Hitcher, I just... The other movies I liked more. Okay. That's kind of how they got stuck in the average. And I think we saw the remake of the Hitcher, too. Um... Was there a remake? Yeah, there was, and I didn't see it, but I heard it was kind of bad. So. See, I that's what I mean. Like it's when I say average, I mean it's like literally average. It, it doesn't give me any kind of. I put I put poor. You just wouldn't watch it at all. Yeah, I like I I hardly remember anything about it enough to make me have a good or bad feeling about it. My poor list, I remember it so well <laughs> that I hate it. Right. My average list is. I'm sure I remember, like, when we when I sat you down to watch Cannibal Holocaust for the first time. You're watching the scenes. And you're like, those are fake, right? And I'm like, mm -mm, that's a real turtle. Yeah, the turtle issue. thing. I was like, no. you're automatically like, this shit sucks. <laughs> it's like they popped it open like a can opener. And oh like, yeah, the monkey and everything else. So yeah. Uh, okay, so my average list. 
Some people might find this one a little surprised just because I do really enjoy the soundtrack like a lot. It's Trick or Treat with Fastway. Um, however, the story's not very strong. It was during the 80s and, you know, even though you have some cameos like Gene Simmons and Ozzy Osbourne in it, like, Ozzy playing the preacher is hilarious. But the reality is, like, outside of the soundtrack, the movie's just not that strong. It's not that good. Uh, now, some of these other ones have a little bit better plots, but, again, if we're talking about the rewatchability on them, I probably wouldn't watch them all that often. And those include Critters, Cujo, Friday the 13th, Sleepaway Camp, The Evil Dead, the first one, Near Dark, Night of the Demons, The Stuff, and Warlock. Any questions about that list for me? Because uh, we did enjoy Warlock a lot. You know, there were some fun things about it, but, you know, I don't know if I would put it on the top of the list. The so stuff is great just from a campy sort of view, but it's not like something I would consider great either. Uh, so, again, I, I'll probably watch these films like once in a blue moon because I do have the, I do love horror, so do you. So, you know, again, down the road if we're bored and we just feel like watching one, we would, but... As far as, like, desire, it's just not there. So you and I kind of, we, we treat average and poor a little differently. And, right. And, like, for me, I would never, ever watch these movies that I write as poor again. But I remember them, remember Enough. hating them. Right. That I put them in the poor. My average list is, I'm not judging their story. I'm not judging, it means that I watched it. And I have it forgot had it. so little impact on me that I'm like, it's got to be, it's average then. See, I'm surprised at the blob the most because it's a remake, but it's really, really good. But again, it depends on when you saw it. Like, if you watched it now, you might feel different. Maybe I would. You know, I, I told Same you. with The Hitcher. Like, that's just brilliance on there. But again, I don't think I've even watched it in years. So, like, I just know that. I'm always willing to give a movie another look, especially... Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. You probably would. In fact, if I took one, two, three, four, maybe five movies out of that list in your average and had you rewatch them at some point, you'd probably either raise them a little bit or even lower them, depending on how you feel. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that I know you well enough to the point you'd probably raise them a little bit. But again, we're going off what we can remember and all that, so it's not a big deal. Um... I was going to say something, but I totally forgot it. No! That's okay. All right, give me uh, your good list. That would be Wolfen, mm -hmm. Day of the Dead, Sleepaway Camp, uh, The Fly, mm -hmm. Near Dark. Um, I don't know which one this one is. The Howling. The Howling. That you sacrilegious bitch put too low. <laughs> uh, which, I don't know what the next one is. Oh, that's Prom Night. Prom Night. I don't know what the next Creep one is. Show. Creep Show. Creep Show. And then Warlock. And then you have Silver Bullet. And there. Silver Bullet. Oh, yeah, that one's all dark. Yeah. So those, I I say good because I actually can remember them. That's a good, yeah, the only that's reason, a good sign. I, we should note the only reason why she can't really recognize the tiles because the... The pictures are so small. Well, they're small and it's kind of cut off a little bit. The way the tear maker works, it, you can't really necessarily see all the titles. So unless you're familiar with it like me, you wouldn't really know. So that's why well, that was like last week. I um 
I couldn't see alien. Yeah. And I'm like, it looked like a horn. And I'm like, like well, it's funny because it looks almost like the fly a little bit in terms of coloring. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I, was, I was like, like you don't recognize the egg? I said, it looks like a horn. Like, like, <laughs> like horns, like antlers horns. And I, and I was like, that's why I had it like in, in average because I was like, I don't know what this movie is. And you're like, that's alien. I'm like, oh yeah, that needs to go to the top. Sorry. Yeah, outside of really one particular movie, I don't really... I mean, I think The Fly should be a little higher, same with Silver Bullet, but I'm not complaining that much. I think your list is pretty good. The Howling's way too low, but... Again, I think you just said not too long ago, before we even got on air, that you weren't sure if you even remember the film, so... Have to refresh your memory with that one. Uh, I'm getting confused with another movie. That's it's possible. It's very too. possible. Uh, so... My good list actually has a few in there that you did. Mine is uh, Wolfen, mm-hmm. Day of the Dead, Creepshow, Christine, Child's Play, The Fog, Puppet Master, The Fly, Pumpkinhead, Return of the Living Dead, The Blob, and The Shining. Any uh, opinions on that? I think The Shining should be much higher. <laughs> But yeah, there's a few in there that were the same as yours. I think these are all very good films, and we just watched The Fog not too long ago. It was a lot of fun to go back and visit that. Um, yeah, you know, The Shining is good, but I don't know if I consider it like great or best for me. Um, it's a great classic movie by uh, Jack Nicholson, obviously, and everything else that comes with it. It's been we watched. Uh, Ready Player One, they kind of uh, used some stuff mm-hmm. based in the film off of that, which is cool. Uh, okay, let's get to your great list. Um, Child's Play? Mm-hmm. Fright Night? Uh, is yep. that Fright Night? Well, the second one's Friday the 13th. Okay, so Child's Play, Friday the 13th, Cujo. I don't know what the next one the is. The Stuff. The Stuff. <laughs> um... Hellraiser. Hellraiser, The Fog, The Evil Dead, Puppet Master, Puppet Master, Reanimator, Fright Night, Trick or Treat, An American Werewolf in London, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Two. Two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so good. Yeah, not bad. Um, now, see, I love the stuff. I actually. Yeah, that's it. probably the one that's the most surprising. I thought it was hysterical and racist and like that's why and they're like he, I, I'm trying to think if chocolate it, chip charlie it's chocolate chip i'm like who, what the fuck it's like comes out of left field and the stuff it kind of reminded me of um the good thing about the stuff is it, it it plays off the whole yogurt thing and it's really mm. funny because i i think when I first caught it, I caught it kind of midway through it. And so, like, I'm thinking, what is the problem here? Why are people not like zombies and they're eating all this, like, ice cream or yogurt shit? And then it's I realized... The yeah, right. Then I realized what the movie's actually about. And then it becomes... And I think my sister Bobby and I both watched it while we were tripping our asses off. And that helped a lot, too. <laughs> so, uh, that definitely made it uh, much funnier at the time. You didn't put Halloween 3 in. 
Huh? Did you put Halloween? Yeah, it's in there. You have it way at the top, though. Oh, I did. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so. No, no, no. That There's no Halloween 3. There's Nightmare on Elm Street 3. No, I'll show you when we get there, because I see it right now. I can't see. <gasps> oh, no, it did something to me. I got your list. You're okay, good. Never mind. Okay, go ahead. All right. Your grades. My great list. <laughs> Halloween 3. Hey! Reanimator. City of the Living Dead. Fright Night. Pet Cemetery, The Hitcher, The Lost Boys, and Silver Bullet. So yeah, I really like those films a lot. Um, I they, love Reanimator. I found it more funny than. Well, that's the whole point. It's, I mean, we we watched Jacob's uh, wife the other night with Barbara Campton. She's the woman in Reanimator who, at the end, is butt naked and the guy with the his head. Is trying to eat her out. Like, that's one of the funniest things from that film because his head is just, he's, his body is holding his head where he can eat her out. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Uh, so it's, it's a really funny moment. Uh, so, no problems for you on my great list. Now she's not paying attention to me. Sorry, I just, I got a message. I got a message? Alright, I'll go to my best list first. And I have. Let me see. The Howling. Nightmare on Elm Street. Evil Dead 2. Nightmare on Elm Street 3. The Thing. American Werewolf in London. Hellraiser. Poltergeist. And the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. And they're all fucking fantastic. They are, because, I mean, I have some that are the same. Um. Trying to think, I had American Werewolf in London and Great, um, but yeah, I had some that were the same. Were you able to pull it back up? Mm -hmm. Okay. It, it was like an ad that popped up, and it's uh, it like okay. So I, 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 what's my first one? Oh, actual, the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Yep. Critters. Mm -hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street Three, The Lost Boys, Evil Dead Two, The Thing. Halloween Three. That's Halloween Three. Okay. Yep. 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 The Shining, Poltergeist. And Pet Cemetery. Yeah, I don't have a problem with any of those, really. So, Critters, to me... Um, critters and The Shining, I don't consider quite that high, but I understand why, because you have a big love for Critters. Dude, I, I like... My, I kind of forgotten, because I watched that again for the other, first time the other day. It was fucking a little rolling in. And it, they were using curse words. I couldn't remember it at the time that they did that, and when they did, I started laughing my ass off. And, um... Because he blew off the one Critters, like... Yeah, he, he ate the dynamite, and yeah. he's like, oh, shit. He's like, motherfucker. <laughs> my, um... My, my younger cousin, Leo, it's like a favorite movie when she was a kid. She, my grandmother used to watch her when she... I'm talking young, like, maybe two. Um, and we had... I bet you I still have the VHS upstairs that my grandmother had recorded it off of HBO. Right. Years. And, um... That's, I used to do that a lot with VHS. Like, I'd find, like, movies were on TV and I'd just record them. So, Leah watched the shit out of Critters, and I love it. I, I'm i scared that... I mean, we just watched it, and I still loved it, but, you know, like... Sometimes I think with certain movies, um, you get worried about the, about it holding up. Right. So for Lost Boys, 
I did not see The Lost Boys in the 80s. I did not see it until I was like 21. I saw it in the theater. <laughs> I didn't even know the movie existed until I was probably younger than 21 because I was still with Eddie and um, Elton and I used to hang out a lot. I haven't seen him in years. And um, he had The Lost Boys and he was like, you've never seen The Lost Boys. So we were watching The Lost Boys. I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. So he had um, he had it on VHS and he had it on DVD. So he gave me the VHS and I still had a VCR. This is, yeah, the, I, I was I was in college, but I, I wasn't quite as old as 21, maybe like, maybe 19. And I had a VHS and I would play it nonstop. Like I would put it on and go to bed and watch it every single night. I love that damn movie. Oh my god. I still do. And it still holds up. So, Because there's some movies that I watched in the 80s when I was younger, like like The Goonies, and you get that kind of like affection, or you get it's like heartwarming. You know, you, you remember it a certain way when you're a kid, then you watch it again, and I'm like I still liked it, but it's, it's, a, it's really a movie that just didn't hold up to me, but I remember watching the movies so much when I was a kid. I don't know. So I, I worry about critters because I'm like, I don't want to like try and watch it too much because I think I caught a little bit of it when I was watching it with you. Right. I just don't want it to affect me and be like, man, I had all these great memories of like my grandmother and my oh, grandmother yeah. watching my, my little, my, my grandmother, I, I swear to God, she nothing was appropriate like that's how i saw poltergeist that's how i saw the shining like all of these movies poltergeist scared the shit out of me for years it's a good film years that that little clown doll Mm -hmm. fucking swimming pool bullshit yeah years i was more afraid of that kind of stuff than like the the television where like you know, with the little, like, going into the TV. That didn't scare me as much as the weird clown doll and the weird, like, in the in the swimming pool where it, like, fills up and there's all the mud and the heads and the... Yeah. <laughs> now it's funny because you think of, um... Who's that? Craig T. Nelson? Yeah. He's like, you moved the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies, you son of a bitch! What are you going to do with all the gravestones? Well, you did it before. <laughs> You're living on top of there. <laughs> what? <laughs> now, we all know my obsession with A Nightmare on Elm Street. So, like, every Nightmare on Elm Street would be put up in best. Like, if you put anything made... There's actually a lot of trash in there. I'm here. It's, it's up there in best. It's, it's, I will do a marathon now we should probably like i mean we could literally go and like do a tier at some point down the road with like franchises like halloween mm-hmm. and, you know stuff like that i um i put evil dead 2 higher than the evil dead because i liked it better so you know I. what i mean like, no, that's how i was like and people get mad at me i, I think the remake in 2013 is actually better than the original mm-hmm. And it, it really has nothing to do with, like, the original Evil Dead being bad or anything. It's just, I just prefer the newer one. I like the darker tone of it, and the graphic special effects are just nuts. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, they were. Yeah, that's. I think that's one of the things that caught her eye initially. It was like, oh my god, that girl's arm just like slid off her fucking body. <laughs> that shit was crazy. And for me, for like with Pet Cemetery, again, my grandmother. I'm sure. I've seen people say they do not like that film. Like I'm like, what? Like, I heard the remake was actually supposed to be scary, so I have not watched it yet still because I have such an affinity for the original. But, like, the guy who plays the neighbor is Herman Munster, so that's, like, really helpful. Uh-huh. And that, I forgot his name. Crap. But He was good. He was great. And then, like, that little boy who played Gage, he was so little. And to be able to, like, say, first I play with mommy, now I'm going to play, gonna with, play you. with you. Yeah. I'm like, damn, you little fuck. So that's not creepy at all. Mm. And then, sometimes dead is better. Yeah, that movie to me, I mean, book's good. I've read the book prior to seeing the film, oh, I know. so it's my, good. My grandmother was probably reading it, and we want... When did that come out? Like, 88? Yeah, 88 or 89, because mm-hmm. I know... I'm sure I watched it with her. Cemetery she, she 2 was, came out a couple years later. She was really big on... Cemetery 2 wasn't bad, per se. Just, you know, obviously, if I'm going to watch a Pet Cemetery, it's going to be the original. She was really big on the, um, my grandmother, like, she was a big reader. She'd go to the library all the time. And, um, even to rent movies. So I, I went to the library a lot with her. And, you know, a lot of the stuff does remind me of her. She wasn't so much into the Friday the 13th stuff like I was. And the, um, Nightmare on Elm Street. She was more into the, like, this is um like the shining and that that's her kind of vibe she likes those like i want to say it's a little psychological but you know what i mean so anyway all right well let's get back into our music what's up with the music got some sacrificial slabs in here alchemy of flesh but we're kicking off some quest stuff from dominus into the gods
everyone, this is Blake from Pig Destroyer. Hey, Beak and Zealot R.I.P. And you are listening to DJ Anubis and DJ Neko at Metal Tavern Radio. Get into it now. DJ Nubis. Getting ready to jump into our rock block here. And besides Neko's pick, we have Healthy Living provided by Quabar PR. Okay. Also got David Bowie in there. Sabotage. Oh, that's right. You put David Bowie in there who didn't know the Right. Also got the Verve. And we're going to kick it off with some Over and Nemesis provided by Music Records. The song's called All This Time, and we will be back. Yeah. 
Looking for a place to take care of all your automotive needs? Then get in touch with Stauffer's Auto Service in Millersville, Maryland. Stauffer's takes care of all auto repairs, auto service, and great quality parts as well. Stauffer's is located at A328 Veterans Highway, Suite E in Millersville. Be sure to call and check out all their service specials related to your automotive needs. Stauffer's is professional, friendly, and is highly qualified mechanics to do excellent work with prices that are fair and much better than what you will find at other automotive places. So call 410-729-0121. That's 410-729-0121. And tell them the newsman and his trusty sidekick, Neko, sent you
little funk there, David Bowie with fame. So amazing. So amazing. Just so amazing, man. Well, it's funny, um he's unbelievably creative. Mm -hmm. You know? And he takes he doesn't like put himself in a, a box. He thinks out of the box. He takes um like inspiration from lots of different musical types, you know, he's not just like I'm a rocker or I'm this or I'm that. He, no, he's always kind of reinvented himself throughout the years before his passing. I mean, it's just pretty amazing, actually. Mm -hmm. The career that he had. So, getting to your pick of the week here. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with it? And why have I not heard his band before? <laughs> you never heard this I band? heard the song, just not the band. So, that's what that was one of the reasons why when I finally put it in I'm like oh my god I know this song so a lot of people know this song right and the funny thing is I um I've heard it a million times you know I, I listen to a lot of classic rock and um I was uh, a couple of months ago driving my mom one of her doctor's appointments and this came on and I was like damn I haven't heard this in a while but it was like just really melancholy and it was kind of like a melancholy feeling like you know she's still going through treatments and going to the doctors like three times a week so um I put it in my list and I know I was making like you know it was just like kind of like kept getting shuffled down because I kept because I put it on months ago on my list of right. things I wanted to listen to and use as my pick of the week but it just kept getting shuffled down and like at that time I really like was kind of just so the song came out in 71 you know another 70s song and well, the 70s <laughs> apparently um George Harrison was the producer and he played guitar on nice. the song. Nice. And I um I know like this is kinda like with my um my song from last week good. It's kinda like one of those songs where the band itself it it really just I I'm having a hard time thinking like of other songs. Other there. songs and like other um other like anything for them. I don't think they, they, they've struggled with a lot of um legal issues. Um there was a lot of financial issues, there was a lot of like um the lead singer actually committed suicide. Oh, wow. like the, you know, like last week. We find these these um and then um, the only there's only one surviving member uh, of the band, and then in '83 another like this was there was a lawsuit that was in '73 and it was like after Apple Apple Records you know George Harrison folded 
they were struggle. Um, the band was struggling with a lot of legal issues, and then the lead singer committed suicide in '75, and then like in '83, another member of the band committed suicide, and then the another member of the band died in 2005. So there's only one surviving member hmm. of the band, but it's like they um, they were called the Ivies at first, and then it changed their name when after they signed to Apple and then like after 72 it was just like insane like they tried to have a reunion and then there was another suicide it, so like wow. this band never really kind of I feel like can't catch a break mm-mm. so in the 60s they were known as the Ivy then when they signed with Apple, they changed their name to Badfinger. And the one song that I picked is the one that I really know, which is Day After Day. Right. And um, they that was released in 71. And having, you know, the help of George Harrison, who produce this particular song that does sound very Harrison-y. Yeah. Now that, that I think about it. Um, I'm here even looking through their, like... Hits? <laughs> yeah, I'm looking through their... Their, uh, what do you call it? Catalog. Catalog. Yeah. And it's like... They only have one studio album as the Ivies in the 60s. And then when they changed their name as Badfinger in 1970, um, between 70 and 74, they had um, one, two, three, four, five, six albums. And then they released another one in 79, and then they released another one in 81. Because it, it seems like after their struggles in 73 and 74, and then the, the the lead singer suicide in 75 you know they tried to get back together and put themselves back together in 79 and then they tried to get back together in 81 and it just like it shows like their charts just nothing ever came nothing together just ever, like it's like 125th right but straight up is the album that this came off of and it actually got to number 31 right this was like one of those, you know, songs again, like last week with, with Good, you know better better than Ezra for yep. Good. Yeah. You know Bad Finger for Day After Day. I probably could go and deep dive into their catalog a little bit more and get some better insight, but just kind of like... Yeah, it's one of those things where like, you hear this song, you're kind of like should probably check out that full album just to see what it is mm-hmm. like really how good it is or some of their other material like that happens where i'm like like i said with kingdom come like i started checking out their other catalog later in year later in the years and i'm like wow they got a lot of good stuff that just no one knows about and i think that was kind of part of their um their struggles too was like they you know they they had some they had the foundation you know and then they they what ends up happening to a lot of bands is they just get this, they get in legal trouble or the band themselves can't get together and they can't get their shit together and then 
here you go. It's yeah. like, they just... Then by the time it's time to, like, get shit together, everyone's gone. Like, that's just how quickly time can fly. And, I mean, hopefully they were doing other things in life to be happy in a sense. But, yeah, just... So, like, day after day was their biggest... And, again, it's it's just, like, better than Ezra. They, if they got, like, to number three, number four, number two, um, number two in the Canadian charts, number on the U.S. Hot 100 and the, I don't know what the CB Top 100 is, um, they got the number 3. They were number 10 in the U.K., so this was like... Their biggest hit? Their biggest hit. Now, there's another song, Come and Get It, which also was like really high. It was like... We'll have to check that out sometime, yeah, see if we recognize it. See if we recognize it, because it got to number 7 on the U.S. Hot 100 and number 6 on the U.S. CB Top 100. And then in the UK and Canada, I got to number four. Um, but everything else, like you're you're looking at all their singles that were released, like um, they either didn't chart or they're like seventy nine. And I was looking, like I said, I was looking at their other catalog, like the the list, like the full album, yeah. and they're up there, like. 125, 148, but this one, um, straight up actually got to 31. So, again, I'm not trying to be like a downer or anything, but we, I think sometimes these small, these bands with, with, I hate, and again, I hate saying one hit wonders, but that's what happens a lot. Well, yeah, in a way, like... Because you know they're talented. Like, you know better than Ezra is talented, but it's like, it just kind of... When yeah, because it... When it, they hit hard, it was right during the heyday. Mm-hmm. And then when they tried to keep making music, it was the decline of mm-hmm. alternative music. Yeah, some bands are able to put multiple hits out and it keeps the radio playing it. But, like, these guys, they had a couple. And then, like, even though they may have good records outside of that, the, if the radio's not playing them mm-hmm. or... Uh, and we saw in that documentary a lot of times it wasn't even about the talent. It was about what uh, record producers mm-hmm. are able to schmooze and get their albums yep. played. Yeah. So here we are. Bad finger. Day after day. And it's great. And it is very George Harrison y. <laughs> yep. Here we go. Attention, please. Be prepared for a musical transformation that you've never felt before. In a moment, we will bring you on a journey like there's no tomorrow. And we will break new ground. Hailing from the land below the wind. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ladies and gentlemen, Audio Jump. Let's welcome DJ Neko's pick of the week.
DJ Anubis here, and I want to say if you dig all things Godzilla and KG related, then check out the YouTube channel of the Sci-Fi Century. He has great reviews, opinions, and theories in the world of sci-fi horror, anime, and of course everyone's favorite atomic breathing lizard, Godzilla. Century provides great commentary when both having a special guest on his shows as well as the collaboration with the big teddy bear, that fat samurai guy. So if you want to keep it raw, real, tune into the Sci-Fi Century. That's S-C-I-F-I-S-E-N-T-R-Y. Sci-Fi Century. Tune in to get the best in science fiction and Godzilla-related information. Peace. Neko and I were talking a little bit about the look of, was the singer that you it's said? It's the pianist, pianist. Russell. He, um, huge, huge. He's done everything. He's done, he worked with Ike and Tina Turner, worked with the Rolling Stones, worked with Badfinger, worked with Eric Clapton. I mean, But we were talking everybody. about his look where he looks like where Rob Zombie might have stolen his look from. Because he, he's top he hat, long hair. Just like Rob Zombie, long hair, big ass beard, has the top hat. Just like you. And very similar like um like facial features and everything yeah. too. And he actually passed away in two thousand sixteen, so there are some pictures of him in his seventies. Still with the long yeah, hair. Kept rocking. the long hair, kept the big ass beard, but it's all white and I'm like Baby, look, this is what like Rob... Simon. This is what Rob Zombie's going to look like in 30 years. So right? I think it's going to be great. I love that, though. But the interesting thing about it was the piano piece and Day After Day, I was trying to get to that, and I guess you couldn't find anything whether or not mm -hmm. there was... Uh, that sounded almost like Neil Diamond's Coming to America because... He, I'm sure he worked with Neil... You know what? Let me look that up. Because, um... It's actually going to play a part of this one of the two stories of music that I've got. One is Testament's Alex Skoll, guitarist. He does a podcast where he and I got we got to try to find this because it's very interesting. He does a podcast where he examines songs that exhibit nearly identical music qualities. And in this article from Blowermouth.net, he defends Led Zeppelin, uh, Stairway to Heaven. Uh, because that's one of the we talked about it not too long ago, but where they were being sued or challenged over yeah, there was another guy. the band from Spirit mm -hmm. doing Taurus. So, but other songs he's tackled is like George Harrison's "My Sweet Lord" uh, with the Chiffons, "He's So Fine." He's so fine. But we were, I think it was was it "My Sweet Lord" that we thought sounded like "Fox on the Run" by Sweet, didn't we? I yeah. No, it was something else. It was a different song, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so but we had already challenged. We talked about that at one point too. Uh, so yeah, Alex will get on the podcast and he'll he'll debate these things about the songs and how they are similar to others. So uh, some of them are like coming, uh, comparing, waiting on the world to change to people get ready, comfortably numb to here comes the flood. Always somewhere to Simple Man. So there, there's a lot of songs that he says have similar vibes and, and riffs and stuff like that. And he kind of breaks it down uh, and talks about whether or not there really is any kind of, you know, stealing or ripoff. But one thing he made, a uh, comment he made about Led Zeppelin recently was, A lawsuit over the instrumental part of a song is, for the most part, pretty fucking ridiculous. Excuse my language. 
Alex said as transcribed by Blubbermouth tonight, it would open the doors to a veritable ocean of litigation. He's probably right about that because so many times we'll hear a power rip by a band, whether it's death metal or whatever. And they're we're like, kinda... oh, that reminds me of... Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you if you really think about it, and I'm not even a guitarist and or a musician of any type, but I know for just common sense-wise, if you take a track or a riff, mm -hmm. so let's say... One of the classic guys who does one of the best death metal riffs ever is Chuck from Death. So if you hear something like spiritual, you, know, mm -hmm. uh, you can change that by either tempo or uh, arrangements. And it might still sound similar, but if you say, let's say, <laughs> let's use Vanilla Ice's. Uh, dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I'm doing. You know, so. In some ways, Vanilla was right, but the way that Ice Ice Baby was, it was like almost a direct ripoff. So I understand that. Now, granted, Vanilla like did bl like blurred lines with uh... right, and I think I think they won over who was the um, artist they thought they were uh, Marvin Gaye. Mm -hmm. So i think i don't think marvin gaye's company won that lawsuit or maybe it, maybe it was the reverse maybe they did they i don't did, I thought, okay maybe uh, they I'm did but point is and i know zeppelin won their case against spirit and and that's the thing like it, it really comes down to how the arrangement is they, they were supposed to pay five uh robin thick and pharrell williams were supposed to pay five million to marvin gaye's estate for blurred lines okay so they did rip it they, they did lose the lawsuit mm -hmm. okay uh, but in this case, you know, we, we hear about it all the time, like, Stairway to Heaven's a ripoff of this song, and then, you know, people were actually convinced that it was. Now, granted, maybe in some ways it was, but we, we always say that about with artists, is that, you know, you grow up, and if you're a musician, you're, you're influenced by all these other bands and rock bands and whatnot, and so I believe that subconsciously you're saying to yourself, you're playing something because you're trying to create a song, you're like... Da, 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 it sounds really good mm -hmm. and then you don't realize that maybe you're taking a riff from another song you really like mm -hmm. you're just not thinking about it because you know you're a musician you're pretty creative so that probably happens more than you think and I think that's sort of what Alex is getting to about well that's definitely what George Harrison said with my sweet lord he was not purposely um, right he, he you know you gotta think and we, and we played was a big big influencer for the uh for the beatles so he totally like was just saying i was influenced by it and it was right. kind of subconscious that i was and we know we, we played it earlier the verb doing bittersweet symphony was they got they lost the lawsuit to the rolling stone because of the the copyright issue and the, the reality is maybe those guys when they created that song weren't trying to rip off the rolling stones but they may have been influenced by it and so therefore that's where the tricky part comes in. Now, maybe some cases are different than that is where it's more blatant and that makes sense. But then, you know, you have to wonder how does that play into a guy like Puff Daddy who made But see he samples. Right. And he doesn't so I'm assuming though he probably gets the the permission from the artist. So that's a little bit different with sampling and I, I, I think that's what um it, it, how it kind of works is when, like with um, with Pharrell and um, Robin Thicke, they literally um, 
took that entire background and made, like, same thing with Ice Ice Baby. They took it and made it into something different, but yeah. With, um, everybody who samples things, you literally, they don't change the sample. It's in there. It, as it's it is. sort of like tone look yes. yeah okay or like um i'm trying to think of a good one that that like i mean there's samples well tone like when he did um what was it uh shit was his first single that was the second one uh, wild thing yeah mm-hmm. which was there was some sampling from van halen in that so uh, i got that but you know so like okay so like um that song with with uh puff daddy mo money mo problems uh with uh notorious big mm-hmm. featuring puff daddy and mace um that whole thing in the background is a song you know i don't know what they it's a sample it's like from the the 70s right and they and they do that a lot. i think even like a lot of times is is rap and hip hop started in the nineties. They were it's, it's, it's they a, were influenced. It's a, Di- it's a Diana Ross song. Um, they were kind of ripping I'm off um, Grandmaster Flash mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So and then you have other cases like Run DMC actually doing Aerosmith, and when they even got together, and you know they both were together with it. They supported it. Aerosmith was all for it. So when they did Walk This Way, so well, it was also like uh, what you call it, um, the song from Godzilla. 98. With, oh, uh, Cashmere. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's they, they, it was Cashmere Puff with Daddy. Puff Daddy, but they actually were playing. Like they, they knew about it. They agreed because right. they're like, we're gonna do this because he's the master. But sample. I think there is some validity to what you said about these these artists. Like Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams probably were heavily influenced by Marvin Gaye, but not really knowing they were actually directly copying. Mm-hmm. See, I don't think a lot of these artists go into this mentality like, oh yeah, if I just rip this off, then I can make a lot of money. Except for Vanilla Ice. I totally think he... he <laughs> I, I, I hate to say that, like, because he was you know, defending is, himself to the end of the day. Right. Ice's problem probably was that he just didn't go out and get permission. Like, the, all these other artists, like Puff Daddy and them, they probably talked to these artists, like the police and whatever, and they're like, can we borrow this sample or whatever? I think Ice just said to himself... We're going to try to sneak by and get it done. And, of course, it's not going to work when it's like a direct fucking copy of that uh, riff. So, in music, sampling is the reuse of a portion or a sample of the sound recording. Um, and, hold on, I'm trying to find it. Sampling without permission can infringe on copyright or maybe fair use. It, you have to, like, acquire permission through clearance. So, basically, some things are so old that they're now considered public domain. Right. So you can sample that without any problem. Or you can start, like, you know, like with, with Biggie and, and Puff Daddy and all. They, they got permission from people or permission from the labels. That was the big thing, too. Yeah. Yeah, because there's they because they were with the same royalties label. play yeah mm-hmm. royalties play a lot in that. Now, if you are like Vanilla Ice is not on the same label, I believe, as uh, David Bowie and Queen were. So getting those those permissions and royalties, it's like 
Well, also at the time, I think Ice was like, he wasn't even a known commodity, so it wasn't like, because that was like his first big hit. So he's basically a nobody coming into that when he decides to use that, that sample. And, of course, the band Queen, they're looking at this and like, okay, yeah, this guy made a lot of money using our sample, but he never got permission. So this is interesting. Common samples. The drum pattern in Led Zeppelin's recording of When the Levee Breaks, played by John Bonham, mm -hmm. is one of the most widely sampled in music. It's used by the Beastie Boys, Dr. Dre, Eminem. <laughs> um, the seven-second drum break in the 1969 track Amen Brother, known as the Amen Break, became popular with American hip-hop producers in the early 1980s. 90s. It has been used by th thousands of recordings, rock bands, and hip-hop. So, I, it's really interesting, I think, there is, it, there, what it's saying is, there's a, um, sample length. Yeah. So if you're using, like, a certain amount of seconds under, I think they're saying the 10 second sample length is the timing. Mm -hmm. So if you're under 10 seconds of a sample, it's they're saying it's it, you can argue that it's not as much of a sample as if you're using something and looping it and it's a, it's over and over again, which is really interesting because um back to one of my which it's I have such a wide variety of musical loves the Wu Tang Clan the one thing that I and I think a lot of people who actually do like the hip-hop style of the Wu-Tang Clan, you know, they all worked together kind of in an underground, and then they got gigantic. They didn't sample. They created their own samples. Like, the song, like, all of, like, the beats and stuff, they did themselves. Um, like, when you hear some females singing, like, that's all their own people that they got, and they, that's how they created the music. Instead of going back and picking up stuff from like the 70s and, and hitting samples they would sample like a friend of theirs doing something and then like loop it or add right. it into their music and I find that absolutely creative and fascinating on like the, the David Bowie level because it's like they they knew what they wanted to do and they had been doing it like living in Brooklyn themselves like hanging out in the basement like we are just having fun as, as friends mm -hmm. making music and it was kind of raw and gritty and, you know, but then all original. Right. It's not, I'm not saying that that's better, but I, I give it a lot of respect because I, I feel like sometimes um, it is like with, with uh, the song Mo Money, Mo Problems is that Diana Ross song. I'm coming up to, to, to. It's so, and they, they probably... They, it was one of the biggest uh, Mo Money Mo Problems, biggest selling songs, like, for years. Sometimes I wonder if, like, it's easier to take something that is kind of like an ear earwig, is that what they, or earworm, whatever they call it, that, like, gets stuck in your head and it's right. an older song that you just are like, oh, it's already in my head, so now I've got this song that I already know, and then I'm making a new song, so it's like, oh, 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 I don't know. I just find all of this really interesting, and that's one reason why I, um, again, certain bands that we know and love, like, you see their level of creativity because they'll start adding 
levels. Like what, one well, thing... the funny thing is about the you know the Zeppelin thing was mm-hmm. when they were in court. Robert Plant said, "I had never heard of Spirit, and don't even know who they are now." However, Jimmy Page actually owned five records on the band. Oh, shit. But they still won their case. Like they didn't get uh, charged with plagiarism. So. So I'm gonna say something about that because the only thing that sounds um, plagiarized is the very, very beginning of Stairway. That is literally like a scale. And what again it could play into what you've been saying is that subconsciously Jimmy Page could have been like, okay, I've got this little small rip that I'm playing or these notes. And in his head, he might be saying, I've probably heard it somewhere, but maybe it's I'm the one that's been playing it because it's in my head. I'll, I'll give you another thing. Like, this is why I'm saying it. it's a scale, like what guitarists do to kind of like just warm up. Right. The song um, Dust in the Wind by Kansas. They were just shitting around. He was just kind of like right. warming up his fingers and um, that was his thing he did. That actually happens a lot. I hear I hear it all the time yeah, from bands like, and artists. They're like, yeah, I was just goofing around the guitar and the guy said, hey. Let's play that. Let's try that again with this. I'm just, you know, going through some chord progressions. And that's what I think is in the Spirit song. It's in Dust in the Wind. They even, they've admitted it. Like, it just started off as some chord progressions. I think that is a very common chord progression in Stairway to Heaven and in the Spirit song. So, I don't think it's really fair to be like, Okay, because then as the song progresses, it turns into Led Zeppelin. Yeah. You know what I mean? The Spirit song is literally very low-key, and it's those chord progressions the entire time. The other thing that bothers me about some of this stuff, yeah. uh, mainly, like, okay, Spirit, you know, they were a band around the same era, but, like, some of these bands, to me, just go for money grabs. Like... Yeah. Apparently, when Spirit came after Zeppelin, it was like four decades later. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, okay, so these guys made all this money, and now you want to, like, take them to court over this. It's like, you should have been doing that the minute you heard Stairway to Heaven. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but they didn't. And I think it had a lot to do with them as Zeppelin making more money than they did mm-hmm. during their time. Mm-hmm. Well, think about, um, oh, shit, I just lost my train. Oh, the Nirvana baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've been talking about that. We have just been talking about that, the two of us, in, in private. Like, he's saying that he's scarred for life and blah, blah, blah. And But over the years, he's like He's recreated mimic. it as he's gotten older. Yeah, in the pool, so. Not naked. You no. Know, but you, there's but literal... the, the image, he's been, yeah, he's been taking it to task that that's him. So mm-hmm. he uses it for publicity or popularity or whatever it is. But he clearly isn't scarred from it. Mm-hmm. So another article I wanted to get to. Again, I'm, Blatter- I'm like derailing everything. I'm sorry. I don't know. You're good. It's all part of the same thing. So the other article from Blowermouth.net. And this one's... I got a bone to pick with Sean Keeley and the violence. We're going to wow. see them at MDF, hopefully. If that still goes through next year. Uh, great band. Great dude. Uh, now he... 
recently as 2018 had underwent a liver transplant necessitated by cirrhosis. So he was kind of dealing with uh, health issues. And I remember when Crip from Metal Mania interviewed him. Like, they were talking a little bit about that and his health getting better. Mm -hmm. and, you know, they're going to be putting out a new record, I think. And, of course, we're going to see them at MDF. So, um, when was, when was his health issues? Around 2018 or so. That's when he, yeah, he went to the hospital. Now, in, in the article, like, basically, and this is, you know, where my bone to pick with them is a little bit. I, I'm all for freedom of choice. You and I are both big on individuality uh, personal freedoms in America, whatnot. Despite all his health issues, he's been very adamant about vocal vocalizing that he is not going to do or not take the vaccine for COVID. Like he says, it's it's about freedom. <laughs> That's what he says. Yeah, I mean, it really is. Fucking do it. Like do it or don't do it. Well, my issue with him in that is that is probably his reasoning more than the fact that he chose not to do it. Like, if you say, I don't want to take it, then great. But if you're going to use the mantra, it's about my freedom, then that's kind of cheesy because the problem with COVID is, is and you and I both know this, it's not about just you. It's about other people. It's about public safety and health. Uh, so, in Sean's case, if he ends up getting COVID... That's his problem. It is, and some some other musicians have been very nasty about it when he got sick uh, with his other shit. They said, "Well, you get what you deserve," and it's like, "Well, that's uncool." But let's say Sean gets COVID, and then he's sitting next to a woman with a young baby, and he gets that baby sick, and that baby dies. Is that on him? Now, normally I would say no. That's kind of fucked up to hold him responsible. But then at the same time. If you're going to be nonchalant or disregarding other people around you, because this is a disease you can spread to other people. Um, you know, again, I don't mind if you have, you know, you just say you're not comfortable taking it, but to use the backdrop of, well, it's America, I don't, I don't have to do it, you don't have to force me to do it. I'm like, well, that's true, but at the same time, this is a public health thing, so when it comes to personal freedoms... I think this is a bit of a different case. Well, I'm going to give you the 180 on this because for me, I don't care. I'll get, I'll get 8,000 vaccines. I don't care if I grow a third boob. I'm not the type of person. Going total recall on me, shit. Yeah, I'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> But you should not force somebody to, um, to do something that they don't want to do in general. I know it's a public health thing, but I, like... I made my own choice. I was like, sign me up, I'll get a, a vaccine. Well, right, but that, again, you know, most people are smart like that because we don't want to fucking get ourselves sick. You, if I mean, literally, you are interested in this because your mom's health. Mm -hmm. If you didn't get it and didn't want to get it and she got sick from you having COVID, would you feel guilty about it? Oh, yeah. Okay. See, remember, I was in the vicinity of someone who a relative had COVID and I didn't go around my mother. Right, but I'm just saying, that's what I'm saying here, is that you have every right, I have every right not to take it. But I'm not going to go out there and say, well, like, it, it just seems like from Sean's point of view, it's more about sticking it to the man than it is to common sense. 
And it's not just about people around Sean. Sean has just dealt with medical issues. So he's not out of the woods. So, like, if he gets COVID, it could very well kill him. Mm-hmm. And that is his cross to bear. Now, if it's just him dealing with that, if, if people got COVID and it just affected you, it'd be no big deal, in my opinion. But the fact that it is a more grand public health service or pro- issue. The problem with COVID is it's, um, like, everybody gets sick. Like, you get, get a cold, you get the flu. Like, I was texting my cousin Leah, ironically, when I was talking about critters earlier. And um, her fiancé got, you know, cold or whatever from work. And he was really sick for, like, a week. You know, just typical upper respiratory, non-COVID thing. He came home. He's been staying with with her here, down here. And she got sick. And it turned into bronchitis with, um, I forgot what she said, like, some kind of pneumonia. Like, not like the, the, like, one lobe or something. Right. And that's just non-COVID related, like. COVID's super trans- transmittable. It's a, it's a little bit different with than, like, your average cold. And I think that's one thing that people don't see. Everybody's thinking that, like, they're like, oh, you can still get COVID if you get the vaccine. Yes. But the idea is to try to, like... Well, plus it, it's not... Supposedly, if you even give it when you have the vaccine, it won't kill you. Like that's the it, it, that's it. it. It takes the the severity away, and it also it lowers the transmission. Right. Like you aren't going to be as transmittable. I don't know what the right word is for that. You won't spread it. Yeah, you won't much. spread it as easily, and that's with a vaccinated person. Now, for me, I've had. I don't know how many damn vaccines I've lost count. I actually have a booklet that shows all of my vaccines for traveling. Right. And what's one more vaccine to me? So that's what I looked at it as. And I'm like, I also... Yeah, well, I think part of the problem is they all think that this is like some sort of ploy to Mm -hmm. like track people and shit. And I just think at this point that that's a little bit crazy. It's a little bit far-fetched. You're wearing tinfoil hats at that point. Um... There are people that have taken the vaccine and had side effects, and we talked about this at length, you know, privately, that people are different. We have different DNA structures, so, and we've noticed with COVID that it affects people who are either very young or very old, because, you know, you're probably more More frail. More severely. People who are young or old, but the other thing with COVID is the viral load. So that's why you're seeing a lot of these people who are um, maybe doctors or, or care technicians and in the early days before like the vaccine was rolling out these people were getting COVID but they were like getting really really sick and dying because it's almost like we we were out and about you know we ran to I ran to Dunkin Donuts and got a coffee and we might have been in in the vicinity of a COVID germ for like maybe three minutes right when you are in the vicinity of COVID for 24, you know, 12 hours a day, and it's a viral load, that's when you start getting really, really sick. And then if you have on top of that, you already have a pre-existing condition or whatever. 
Now, some people, um, we, you know, we were talking about a friend of ours who takes some medication and that her doctor does not recommend her to, to take the COVID vaccine with her medication. That's what people need to do is listen to their doctor. You know, the Internet is not your doctor. Yeah. Anubis. The Internet is not your doctor. Listen to your doctor. If your doctor says it's not a good Red idea... MD, baby. If the doctor says it's not a good idea, then it's not a good idea. I mean, they've even proven with, with people like my mother, she has... I can't imagine, though, that Sean Killian's doctors are telling him it's a good idea not to take it. I just, I can't imagine that's what they're saying to him. Now, granted, it's still his choice, mm-hmm. but because of his health issues, like I said... They told my mother, my mother, even if you, she was done her um, treatment, you couldn't take it with chemo. Right. But after, they said, go get it. And even with people who have you know, leukemia, even though she is in remission, she's still taking a small dose of chemo, um, through the pill, and it's not going to be as effective with her vaccine, but her doctor still said it's better to have, like, that 40% extra protection than having zero, having no vaccine. Right. So, interesting things to ponder, for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh... Back into our music. Next block, we got some Evil Spell from Grand Sounds. Also, new stuff from Thyfing and Wormwitch. Both great records of 2021. Two of my favorites to go along with the Oxygen Destroyer earlier in the episode. Yeah, you've been, like, you've been cleaning up this, this year. Yes, ma'am, I have. And so we're going to kick off some brand new Wormwitch. The Wolves Ossering. I believe they actually have a video for this out now, so that's kind of cool. That's pretty bad. This was just chosen by a whim for me because I like the song a lot. So, go figure. I'm, I'm a genius. You are a genius. We'll be back in a little bit. Here's Warm Witch. <laughs>
This is the Retro Movie Vault with your hosts DJ Anubis and DJ Neko only on Metal Tavern Radio. You haven't heard anybody say anything about either one of these. Well, what about these two? Well, they suck. These are the same two movies? You weren't paying any attention. No, I wasn't. I don't think your manager would appreciate it. I appreciate it. your ruse, ma'am. I beg your pardon? Your ruse, your cunning attempt to trick me. Alright, so we are back with our DVD Retro Movie Vault pick. And it was Neko's week. And it came out of two films and I forced her to choose this one because I already seen the other one pretty much. A lot. Yeah, well, I watch it. A, well, I watch it quite a bit. It's been a while, but you know, I did see it more recently. I, I actually had never seen this like in full. Like I knew about it. Uh, didn't know there was all these like stars in it from back in the day, but uh, I don't think I've ever seen this, and it was you know, especially from beginning to end. Right. So it was a pleasant surprise. Uh, she chose 1985, I believe. 88. 88s. Working Girl with Melanie Griffith and Harrison Ford and Sigourney Weaver. And, uh, plot-wise, we've kind of seen this before, but later. So this probably influenced some other films along the way. But it's your early version of a rom-com. Uh, but it actually, I was talking with Neko about it last night after the film. And I was like, the one thing I can appreciate about this film compared to The Devil Wears Prada is... Which was my other choice. Right. Uh, the other movie's fine, um, but this one, uh, there's like this break in the middle of the movie where it focuses mainly on Melanie Griffith's character and Harrison Ford's character. And so they kind of avoid the uh, the entire cattiness of A Devil Wears Prada, even though that's good for what that film is. There's kind of like this break because... Uh, yeah, in The Devil Wears Prada, like... Well, give them, yeah, give them the synopsis of what Working okay, so Girl is. Working Girl is, um, Melody Griffith is Tess McGill. She has been a working girl, working hard. She is a, a, an assistant, a secretary to lots of different people. She has finished college, night school. It took her, what did she say, 10 years or something? It took her a long time. She's got her degree, and she got it with honors. She lives in Staten Island, but she commutes every day on the Staten Island Ferry to work in, my, in Manhattan because you make, you know, better money, and there's more jobs than in Staten Island. And 
she, I mean, there's some great scenes, like, Kevin Spacey's in this movie for, like, a hot second, and, uh, they were trying to put her as his assistant in arbitrage, and they're, she was sitting in the back of the limo, and he's just snorting cocaine left and right, and he, he had a bottle of champagne, and then he puts porn on. So it's just really interesting to see Tess, because, like, she's got this really small voice. Yeah, they say, yeah, one thing, um, Roger Ebert did a review, and he actually gave it four stars. So. I love this movie. Um, he says that she talks in, like, a little kid's voice that she had at 11, and it kind of transcends as she is right now, because she, as she, as Neko pointed out, she, uh, she's trying to find her way up the ladder in a man's world, and across from her is uh, one of the characters Oliver Platt plays and they try to help her out by setting her up with Kevin Spacey's character who is a businessman but the problem is it's really just about uh -huh. Kevin Spacey getting laid really and, and she's basically trying to sleep her way to her job that's what the impression would be She's not having it, and so she, she doesn't put up with shit. Like right. that's why she has to keep going to the, so to despite, the HR to get placed. Yeah. So despite her voice and her demeanor, because she's very soft, she's very soft-spoken. She's you know, they say she's aggressive, but she's not aggressive in the sense that she's gonna come right at you. But when she puts her foot down, you know it. And she does in a limo with Spacey, and she's like. What did she do? She shook up the champagne and, then, and like, sprayed it in his face and made them pull over so she could get out. And she's like in the middle of a highway. Right, and it's winter and everything else. But that's that's the thing. Like she wants to be taken seriously for her her ideas, uh, her knowledge, her smarts, and that makes sense. So then she gets placed by her uh, work agency again to another place where it's a lot of females in there as far as secretarial work is concerned. Uh, but her boss happens to be, for the first time ever for her, is a, another female, Sigourney Weaver. Now, the thing about Sigourney Weaver's character is she's like a shark. And so she is very... She likes uh, Tess a lot. You mm -hmm. know, when they meet, she's like, oh, you know, great, come in, give me the coffee. And this that plays a part later. So... She's getting to know Tess a little bit, tells her what the ground rules are for how she expects Tess to work as her secretary. She's like, it's a two-way street, right. Tess. Right. So she gives her this hook line about, you know, we're, we're a team, and if you have any ideas, feel free to come to me. And Tess does that. Tess, for whatever reason, um, it's Tess, almost like... Tess reads a lot, because it is a, a long ferry ride, so Tess gets ideas very unconventionally, because she'll she'll read... W magazine, but she'll also read like she's almost like a, she's almost like a Mike Ross. Like she sees things, she remembers them, and it plays a part in the things that she researches in terms of her ideas. So she obviously comes to uh, Sigourney uh, Catherine, mm -hmm. her her, uh, That's her right, and gives her an idea about one of their clients and you know what they should do regarding getting into the radio. Uh, at first, Catherine's not very receptive to it, and we think that maybe... She's like, oh, did you come up with this all by yourself? Did you hear an elevator? And one of the key things you learn here real quick is she asks her, uh, does anybody else know about this? Mm -hmm. Or, And then, can I see your notes? And so what Tess does, trusting her, 
is give her all her notes and her pads and everything. And, and her idea, like, she lays it out, like... You know, the one thing you cannot do. <laughs> she she basically tests like, listen, um, I know they're they're worried. This this company is worried about uh, FCC and a, and a corporate takeover. So I think maybe they should eye up a radio station. And um, so she gives all of her information to Sigourney Weaver, Catherine, the boss, and because she trusts her she this is basically now her hero she wants to be mentored by Catherine. and she's gushing to her boyfriend who is uh, Al Al Alec, Baldwin. Alec Baldwin she's like oh and she listens to me and it's so different working for a woman than it is mm -hmm. working for a man yes trust me I know one of the reasons I picked either Devil Wears Prada or Working Girl was some of the issues I'm dealing with I right knew it was now. going there and um <laughs> I have worked with both, and how many times have I had problems with women, and how many times have I had problems with men? It's, 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 it is actually surprising that it's almost role reversal for mm -hmm. you, because you would think that would be better, but in a sense, it's, it's almost like these women that have you have worked with, you really went in trusting them and hoping that the relationship is good, but it's like the same thing. Like, it's it's worse, because the, only time the women you worked with... Right. The other women you've worked for are really insecure, and it's like they tell you things you want to hear, but then they don't follow up on them. Mm -hmm. And that's it's really sad. Like, I'm just like, it's baffling because I know the women that you've worked for now and past, they understand the hardships of being a woman in a man's world. So it's surprising that these women, in particular, in, in Neko's world, are even in this fictitious world have like all of a sudden become their own versions of the man like they don't they will hold other women down to keep themselves up and it happens a lot yeah and it's really scary like Look, we talk about all the stuff that we see in our society right now with the workplace and women and feminism and everything else and we don't really realize that a lot of women actually do hold other women down and you know as much as I have my grievances against feminism like these are the kind of things that emma watson used to say is the things that need to change and it's not just the men part of it it's also the women who don't seem to get it like and see my problem and i've learned this and i maybe it's just part part of my problem just is my personality i am an overly trusting person and i'm an overly helpful person so it gets me in, in trouble in multiple facets, whereas being overly helpful just encourages a larger workload because I want to help people. Right. And um, being overly trusting is how I got somebody who had, and overly helpful, who had zero experience, a man, to somehow end up being my supervisor who had zero experience and was probably 10 years younger than me. Granted, like, what what ends what I end up doing, and I maybe you know I'm forty. Maybe I'm never gonna change. I what I want is the best for everybody. Mm -hmm. I want to share my knowledge. I want you know if someone tells me they need help in the workforce, that's what I do. So, you know that guy who ended up being my supervisor comes to me how unhappy he is in his current role. I gave him the path. I gave him what to do. I gave him 
and he took all of my ideas and went to my boss and somehow ended up being my supervisor. Yeah. That's what I do, and I should just never be, I should never talk to anybody well, at work. Well, and that's the thing, though, like, it's not your fault, like, that's the thing, like, you just trying to be a good friend and, and, and co-worker we're trying to help someone else in the same industry same building move on to a different position that you didn't think mm-hmm. was going to be your manager like you thought he was going to be doing something else well, it wasn't advertised as a manager position it was advertised as another right and, and that's very disingenuous of the job itself like the minute he becomes your manager that's you were really pissed in fact i remember you telling me you were in the conference room when it was announced and your your mouth just dropped yeah it was like because they were told you the woman told you you were being groomed for her she said there's management positions available and i want you to be first in line and blah 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 i don't know if you've ever like you know how when you're a little kid and maybe you like stole a pack of gum or something and you got caught and you get that sick feeling like that like dummy I, that's what exactly happened to me you know like it's almost makes you want to cry like yeah I got caught or I have my hand in the cookie jar or I, I I can't even explain the feeling that day but it was enough to make me do you you know how I am and it's it's I have a terror I, I don't know I, I'm like I'm a I see I see it a different way like I remember one time at Ryder when I was working there in the late 90s and you know you go through the day and you, everything is going well your your job's fine you're having a good day it's a nice day out and then there's just someone there like my boss chewing me out for something you know that you know could have been my fault but it could have been anybody's fault in, in that particular area like as far as like we had other people that field tanks and all that and clean mm-hmm. trucks and so I got chewed out for something, and it just ruined my day. And to the point that, like, yeah, I'm a man, but I was, I was, I was crying, but I was not crying because I was depressed. I was crying because I was angry. That's usually me. I get the rage. Yeah, like it's, it, and it's a thing. Like you just You're like Jesus Christ, I'm barely making any money, and I'm the one who's in trouble. Right, and so like I, I look at you. And you're doing a job, and this, I kid you not, people, I'm gushing about my wife right now, but she was doing a job taking care of two to three fucking ships, or two ships in another department, like the subs. And, and, the, and the people around her, good workers as they were, only had to head on one ship apiece. So here it was, she was doing twice the workload, and I can guarantee, and she would probably back me up, that her boss at the time was basically keeping her in place because she knew that NECA would get that shit done. Mm-hmm. I she... had more work, but they there were other people in the department who didn't have enough work that I had to give it up and give it to them, which I didn't care. Trust me, when you're like, oh, yeah. I'm like, but it was like easy work that I gave to another person because that person didn't have enough to do. Right, and but she knew once she put the guy in place that like she couldn't give it up to... She couldn't give the manager position to you right away because she knew she would have to find someone to do the amount of work that you're doing. I'm the one who trained my supervisor. Right. <laughs> that's even worse. That's like job. the biggest kick in the, the like, shit if there ever like is. nine to five. Yeah. The movie nine to five where Lily Tomlin, she trained the person who got promoted to be her boss too. Yeah, it's, it's, but those, and those are the things that 
most managers don't ever think about. Like, and they wonder why. And I, I hate to say this. And it's, they keep they want to keep the hardest productive person in, in their place. Yeah. And it's not always about like. If they ever tell you you work harder, you get further, no, it's, it's bullshit. It's happening to me right now. It's bullshit. It is bullshit. Do the bare minimum. And I can't give my, I can't do that because what ends up happening is I, I create an identity with my work. and It's a personal thing. Mm -hmm. And you are proud of your work and that's fine. Like, I would never ask you, like, we might joke about you doing the bare minimum, but the reality is you, you're like me. If I go out and work for Amazon... I will do what's best for me and my interests, but I do good work, and I will stand by it because my oh, record... Oh, I know you do. You're always done before everybody else, and they're like, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I literally have dispatchers at night tell me the reason why they keep calling for rescues is because I'm reliable. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter if I get, you know, a, a text message uh, about my work for the week saying that, oh, yeah, there was a few that, you know few customers did, said they didn't get it or whatever the case is I, you know because if i misplace something at the front door rather than back or something like that those don't bother me because at the end of the message that you send me it's like oh but you had 100 percent fantastic customer service no one complained this is the kind of shit that i deal with like it will tell me the pros and cons but it will give me my cons first and then turn around and say the exact opposite at the end of it so, but with her case, she's very proud of the work she does. She works very hard. She puts in a lot of hours. And now at her current job, she's facing this issue where her boss is just being so nitpicky because, again, I think it's because they're insecure. They think that somehow, well, they know, actually, if any boss of this particular company came and watched her work, I got a feeling they would say, oh, well, Missy might be cheaper to be in this person's place than the person we have and, there and now. And the sad thing is, I don't want it. Right. And it, I, I it's like you've never showed any interest in I that. I don't want to be the boss. I don't. I don't. And, and I try. Like I say this to my manager. Like the problem I have with with her is, um, just tell me what you want. I'll do whatever. I don't care. You want it to be one way, but it's always one way, and then it's something different another time, then it's something different another time, then it's something different, and she's like, I, I, I she always would say, would say, like, I'm pushing you, um, so that you, you know, we, what we did yesterday is not always what we're going to do the next day, and the next day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and I get that, but I, my biggest thing is when we have important orders or important things that need to be addressed it doesn't get addressed in a timely manner because she she always does something to make it take too long or she blocks my work or no, 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 we're getting sidetracked side but this is what Catherine does to to test yeah so and so Catherine she goes on vacation and breaks her leg, and she gets laid up in um, skiing. skiing in Switzerland. So she's stuck in the hospital for, like, a couple of weeks. And, um, you know, this is the 80s, and back then, what, your secretary was basically your basic uh, assistant bitch. Oh, I'm staying at my parents' house, so this is the code to get in. So Tess goes to her parents' house. 
She lets in the housekeeper. She does all the shit that's personal shit, not even work related. Like, yeah, Catherine, Catherine basically doesn't even have her doing work. Like, hey, type up these memos. Right. Do, it's her personal shit. Yeah, yeah. Catherine doesn't really care about Tess's advancement. She's there just to make Tess do the dirty, shitty work. Uh, be her lap dog, basically. Yeah, anytime Tess has an idea, it, it's like Catherine makes it her idea. Oh, yeah, that's a great idea. But then this is where Tess discovers through the ancient computers they got. Oh, it's so awesome. That Catherine was going to take her idea, the radio stuff, and put it forward to the clients and not keep Tess in a loop like it was going to be like don't tell Tess. Yeah so she's like uh, she she reaches out to a colleague of hers who you'll find out later who that is but I don't Trainer. Know. Trainer. Jack Trainer is a colleague of hers and um, in this because there was email back then it just wasn't as sophisticated. Yeah. I mean she emailed she's like a light bulb has been you know, came over my head about about uh, tracks industries, and she basically gave Tess's idea to Jack, and then she's like, Two Way Street, you make it happen, Tess." Like she, like that was Tess after she read it. She was like really, really upset. And then but she, then this is where Tess basically says, "Okay, well, oh, she's got." Wait, 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 she goes home. Catches Alec Baldwin screwing one of her friends. Right. And he's like, oh, no class tonight. Because <laughs> she goes to college, too. Like, she, she's working on her business degree now. Like, she's got her college degree, but she's working on her, like, business degree, too. So now she has nowhere to go. She goes back to Catherine's house because Catherine's not there. Mm-hmm. And she decides... That she's going to stay there and she's going to take matters into her own hands. Yep, so she knows that Catherine's looking to take her idea and run with it and leave her out in the dark. So she takes it upon herself now to almost become Catherine, not by name, but... She says she's an an associate. Yeah. So she now pursues Jack Trainer and the client. She RSVPs to Catherine's um, engagements goes to them where's Catherine's six thousand dollar cuts her hair she's you know because she had really bad 80s hair she's she, and one thing that Catherine said to her is like looking impeccably you know reflects on you and so she she changed her look she i will she, say weaver looked really good in this round didn't she? yeah looked really good of course you know younger but she you know as far as her films are concerned. Most times, she's not dolled up, star. right? And I, I remember um, Sigourney Weaver when Galaxy Quest mm-hmm. came out, and because she, she actually loved doing Galaxy Quest. She said she's like, but a lot of my movies that I do, you know, my kids can't even see because they're younger, and they, they just literally cannot see this movie because it's either too scary or too mature or whatever. Yeah. She's like, so. I get to be in action again, but it's something comedy. that's... Uh, yeah, it's a comedy, and it's family-friendly, but... I mean, it has a little bit of, you know, her breast stuff going on, which is what the whole point of the, her character was, but, uh... 
Yeah, I mean, in this film, you know, she's kind of, at one point, kind of in lingerie when she gets back with the cast, and she's she trying... She amazing in that lingerie, Dude, by the way. her legs can go on forever. And she had a cast on, too, so it was an old-school, like, plaster cast up to her... Um... Then she was hitting on Trainer, who was played by Harrison Ford, and I'm just like, Dude, I'd like to be you right now. <laughs> well, it was funny, um, because at this party that Tess was RSVPing to, you made a comment, um... That all these people looking at, at Harrison Ford and all these women, they're probably, because he looked, this is 88 Harrison Ford. That was actually Ford. the wedding. Yeah. Oh, it was the wedding, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. But like, they're just looking at him and he is beautiful and handsome and just like handsomely rugged. Like, if this is... Yeah, it's Indiana Jones. Yeah. Han Solo, that's what... But the, yeah, the, the thing was, like, I'm sure it was part of the movie because Jack Trainer is this sort of like womanizing or this guy who is uh, admired by a lot of women. That's, that's sort of the catch. That's why Sigourney Weaver's character really likes him. Um, but I made a comment to Neko that at the wedding part of it, you had these actresses who were playing different roles, and they're not even speaking, but they're just reacting to him, and they're mm -hmm. all looking at him. I'm like, you know what? I think a part of that is just those actresses really want to look at him. I don't think it's even in and the he, script. And he had so many um, like charismatic moments and smiles and stuff and like so we'll, we'll get to the wedding first in a second but like she goes to this party because she wanted to kind of Tess wanted to kind of like get an eye on trainer and maybe just be social with him for a hot second and she was so nervous that she her friend is over Catherine's house with her and she, Joan Cusack yeah Joan way. Cusack which she was so Joan Cusack mm -hmm. I mean like um the one thing I love about Jim is she has never ever tried to pretend that she wants to be like Julia Roberts. She wants to be a character actress, and she's always been like she's always been a very good character actress. Um, in the movie Confessions of a Shopaholic, she's the mother in that, and her husband is uh, what's his face? Shit. Um, Oh, the father from uh, Roseanne. What's his name? John Goodman. Mm -hmm. So, so Joan Cusack is married to John Goodman, and the whole thing is like she—it's just they're like Joan Cusack is '80s Joan Cusack, and she's like, listen, here's a Valium to test. Take take this Valium, and you'll be fine. It'll just take the edge off. She gets to the party, and she has a couple of drinks and a Valium, and then she passes out in a cab and she and Harrison Ford takes her home and he's like where do you live and she's like building <laughs> yeah well by the time she leaves she's like almost passed out because she had the taxi. volume and a couple of uh, shots of tequila yeah but anyway so uh, after that the next day was the meeting with trainer and she wakes up and she sees that she's oh god my clothes are off and I have to get back, and she she gets dressed, and she goes into the meeting, and it's Trainer, and Trainer is the guy that she didn't realize that because they didn't exchange names, and she thought she slept with him, and it was kind of crazy, but they get this like really cute buddy type relationship, and he's almost intimidated by Tess. Remember he because the at the meeting when he um was sitting with Tess, she pulls out. Um, a folio file and she said I'm sorry my briefcase is broken or missing I forgot what she said 
he um he comes to her after her presentation and he's like we like it we're gonna we're gonna work together my firm your firm we're gonna work together and he hands her gives her a brief briefcase and he says listen if we're gonna work together you need to have a good briefcase and every time that Tess has an idea it's not like a regular idea so she knew that the guy that they wanted to do business with his daughter was getting married because she saw it on page six in um you know in the newspaper and she lies to him basically saying like oh yeah we have a meeting with him and he's like oh well four o'clock's a little early for dinner and a little late for lunch and she's like well there will be a meal but it's not exactly uh dinner or lunch and he's like we're crashing a wedding and it's it's the it's just so funny how she thinks outside the box and he he was almost while they're having their little banter he's like don't push me out. Hey, I know I made a few bad deals. Like, he was feeling like she was judging him because of his past performance. She doesn't know anything about what he's done in the past, but he was so cute and insecure. He's like, I know I'm down a little bit, but don't keep me out of the loop. And then they, they go to the wedding, and then they work together, and then the bitch Catherine comes home. Yeah, basically, uh, Tess and... Trainer become closer and closer. Like he really likes her. First and she, she and she really first she tries him. to keep it professional because she does want to be taken seriously. But then eventually she falls for him. Uh, they end up sleeping together. And of course, Catherine starts coming. It was kind of a funny moment because they're there after they sleep to actually sleep together. Mm -hmm. And uh trainer gets a phone call and he's talking to somebody he's like yeah yeah me too and he, he, you could kind of tell it was his girlfriend mm -hmm. and so i looked at neck i said wait a minute oh yeah you didn't know it that's right because they don't allude to it yet and so i said wait a minute is trainer supposed to be Catherine's boyfriend and she's like smiling <laughs> <laughs> so clearly that's what happens is uh trainer has to explain to Tess that he has seen somebody he's trying to get out of the relationship because he's not happy because mm -hmm. he wants to be with Tess. Um, so the next step is they're going to... So Tess had to go pick up Catherine. Right, from the uh, helicopter. From, from the helicopter. And then, because um, she's like, yeah, I'll be home. And uh, he... So Tess and Jack had a meeting that evening. But... Tess gets to call that she has to go pick up Catherine, takes Catherine back to her um, apartment, or, apartment or brownstone, because it's pretty big, it's probably yeah. like a brownstone, and um, basically Catherine's like, oh, go get my medicine, and Tess is like, I really have to go, I have a doctor's appointment, and blah, 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 so then she goes down and gets some medicine, and she comes in, and Jack is there, because Jack and Catherine are, and Jack even told Tess, he's like, I, I really do love you, but I'm, I'm trying to break this thing off, and I haven't been able to because she went on a trip, and and Jack is there, and he keeps telling Catherine, I really have to go, I have something to do, and they, they do like a little quick smooch, and she's like, oh, but, you know, I've been receptive, I want to, you know, I think we should merge as a couple, and like she's really trying to be, yeah like, she the whole you. time that Catherine's there and even earlier in the film she's alluding to the fact that her boyfriend's gonna pop the big question so 
he somehow gets out of it. Like, he wasn't even trying to go on the crypt because he has actually already checked out at that point. Because he was in love with Tess. Well, before that, he was at the bar because he was supposed to go on the trip and never did. Uh, I think he was telling her he had stuff to do. <laughs> but, yeah, so he, she comes back and he goes to see her because she, she makes a sign because it's this big emergency when really she just wants to get laid. Yeah, she's like, look at me. And she looked good. She yeah, looked she good. Looked good. And for him, to, the way he like just looked at her indifferently, like, I have to go. I have, like, it was, she was in like a little nighty. Oh, yeah. Like, right. Yeah, she uh, she was all decked out in her little nighty and trying to cover the cast to make it look legit. And at the end of the day, like when he tells her he's got to go, like that's the first time she's really feeling rejected. And of course, Tess, she's like, I got to go too. Well, Tess was hiding, so Tess saw that Jack was in there, so she was hiding in the house until Jack left. Mm -hmm. And then she comes in with her purse and everything and sits down her personal. Uh, like belongings next to Catherine and then gives her the medicine and said, okay, do you need anything else? I really have to go. And she abruptly forgets her day planner. And, and that's key. That's it. And, you know, nowadays we put stuff in our digital calendars and it like beeps, your phone beeps at you, reminds you things. Part of me actually loves a handwritten calendar, you know, and I, I might actually start going back to that because I do have a planner upstairs and I was using it and I don't know, I'm just not that important. But Tess was really trying to, like, put in all these meetings, and she'd been putting in the work, same with Jack. And that specific day, that evening, they were closing their deal. And Catherine opens up her day planner, because she's a nosy bitch, and <laughs> she sees, and she's like, what the fuck? Yeah, she realizes that Tess has been working behind her mm -hmm. back. and So she goes, and she interrupts the meeting and starts exposing basically that Tess is actually her secretary which surprises Jack because uh, she didn't tell him and tells everyone in the room that like you know we're going to get this deal done but it's my deal like she's already told the group and everything mm -hmm. that it was her idea leaving Tess to, to, to try to fight for herself Tess not wanting to really make a big scene she just starts like getting teared up and she's like I, I meant to yeah, she knows that at that point there's nothing she can really say. She does have information, which comes in handy later, but she's like, I think the biggest thing was she was so hurt by Jack not believing her that she just, like, got up and left. And you skip some of the other stuff that happens with the ex-boyfriend and whatnot. Uh, eventually, she's getting her stuff from her job because she's figuring she's fired or just quitting or one of both but it doesn't matter she's getting her stuff her personal belongings mm -hmm. a lot of the other girls in the, the area that she works in really like her so they're giving her their goodbyes mm -hmm. they, they took up a little collection of money and they're like it's not much but it's enough to go out and get, get drunk. hammered <laughs> so she's on her way out and of course in comes Catherine, jack and the uh the, the client with mm -hmm. all his buddies and whatnot and, again, there's a scene, like, just, you know, Catherine's like, oh, you're here again, you know, trying to, like, put her down even more. Mm -hmm, make her feel like shit, and she's, she's like, intimidating her. She's trying to use but her Tess is fighting back. Right. right. At this point, Tess is like, my whole life has just fucking blown up. You know, like, the guy I was living with is sleeping with a friend of ours. Uh, 
and his life is going good because he is now doing like boat tours of the city. I have nowhere to live. My best friend got married. My job just imploded. The guy that I fell in love with doesn't love me anymore. So she was just like, well, fuck you and your bony ass. Well, she didn't say fuck you. What did she say? Something about you. Screw you screw. and your bony ass. Yeah, she, it was just really funny the way the bony ass thing just got me. And so, again, the client's there and he's kind of looking at this. And, he, you know, he's doubting her, too. Because, you know, there's nothing she's saying that's really convincing him that it was her idea initially. And then there's this cool moment because Jack starts having second thoughts. Like he's he, he doesn't know for sure who is the trust, but he's believing in Tess now. I guess he just saw her face and he saw how upset she was. And he, like, they're in the elevator and he jumps out of the elevator and he pulls the, um, the executive for the other company. No, he didn't do oh, that. Oh, no, no, no. He got out himself. He got out himself and he just basically said... Uh, you know, Where did Kat you get that idea? Catherine, Catherine's it. like, come on, we gotta get this done. Jack's like, no, I'm not going. I believe her. And at the very last second when the door's closing, Tess jumps in and says, ask her about this, this, or whatever it was. I can't remember exactly the topic. And the client actually puts his hand out and stops the elevator doors from closing, gets oh, out with her. She's like, ask him about the so Catherine can't get out fast enough to, to got, stop she's it. she's got the cast, though. So she and everyone else is still in the elevator going up to wherever the meeting, what floor it was. So it's just Jack, Tess, and the client. And she begins to explain through what Neko said about the the articles that she reads. That That's her thing. Like, every day she looks at articles and... And she noticed something before coming back to get her belongings that there was something wrong with the deal because... They had to finagle it a different way. There was uh, something tied to it that would ruin the client or hurt his product or whatever. So she's explaining now not just what could happen because of something that's happening with this socialite, I guess, that mm -hmm. was, but how she actually came up with the idea to put the radio with him. And so she's explaining now what she didn't at the, the initial meeting, how she came up with the idea. And the client who is super smart, older gentleman, who actually loved her at the wedding anyway, even though it was kind of a ploy. Uh, when they finally get up to the, the final floor and Catherine and the group are coming out, the client simply asked Catherine how she came up with the idea, and she could not come up with like it. She was just stumbling. She's like, I would have to check my notes. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I just don't know off the top of my head. And I'm like, <laughs> Jack, can you help me? And, and Jack's like, like, nope. He's, like, shaking his head. He's like, no, I can't. Especially after, like, he saw how upset Tess was. And he did truly have feelings for Tess. And when she just wowed um, Trask, the, 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 client, the yeah. client, she just wowed him. And she just kept, like, doing her little thing. She's like, well, I read this and this and this and this and this. And, this, and then I put two together because I knew if you went with radio that you couldn't have a Japanese takeover and blah, 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 blah. And he's like, wow, just really impressed. And it was just, it, yeah, was, it, it was adorable. Yeah, she was able to provide all the evidence necessary to show how she came with the idea where Catherine couldn't. And the key moment there was when Trass was like, Catherine, I want you to get all your shit out and get your bony ass out of here. <laughs> 
So it was kind of a funny thing that he used the same. He actually asked her, "What was it you said what again, bony ass?" And then he looks at um at Tess and says, "Can you give me this this you know enthusiasm one hundred percent?" And she's like, "Yeah, I can." Yeah, that was basically her breakthrough moment in terms of a uh, career woman. She's getting that chance to show what she can do, and she's. As uh, Trask put it, she's got the fire in the belly. And, she... and, he, and Trask uh, hires her to work for him as one of his junior executives. But I don't think she realized at first that <clears throat> she was being hired as a junior executive. Yeah. But then you have that adorable warning scene. So now Tess and Jack are together. She's living with Jack. And he packed her lunch, peanut butter and jelly, and um, snacks, and... It was. It gave her like the old school lunch pail, and it had her name on the top. It was just adorable. She gets in there and she talks to the receptionist, and they're like, you know, it's straight to the back, and she sees someone in the um the office. In the office. So she sits down in the desk in front of the office, and the girl Alice just kind of walks out and is like, oh hi, and Tess is like hi and. They, uh, they just start, she's like, uh, I didn't, you know, I was just making a phone call, and Tess is like, oh, it happens, whatever. So, Tess was thinking she was the secretary, and Alice is like, yeah, this, thing about this Tess, McGill, this is your office. Yeah, Tess, for whatever reason, still had the mentality of a secretary, like, she did not think that despite getting the job from Trask, that she was actually going to be promoted to a, uh, as a boss. So she automatically had started making herself comfortable at the, the secretary's desk, and the secretary came back and was like, what are you doing? Your office is right here. And then Tess finally dawns on her that, okay, yeah, I'm in this office. But then she sees the secretary come in and ask and her what's her expected. Her, yeah, yeah. She, she gave her her schedule. She's like, you can go on your computer and click shift. Uh, S and that'll show you your schedule but you have a 9 o'clock with so and so and Mr. Trask would like to have lunch at 1pm and she's like well I guess now is a good time to ask what you ex expect, expect of me and she was just kind of like she just said well if you're going to get coffee for me to get some for yourself and then we'll just figure it out along yeah, the way like, I don't expect you to fetch coffee for me unless you're getting one for yourself and what else did she say it was something really cute like uh yeah I don't remember but she was not treating her like most bosses would treat secretaries like it was it wasn't I don't think it was so much I mean it probably would have they didn't allude to it but it wasn't so much a teamwork thing as it just a respect thing mm -hmm. like it was like she knew that this woman who was going to be a secretary had already been through the ringer like her and had dealt with bosses that were just complete assholes, and she wasn't going to be like that. And you can see the relief and, and expression on the secretary that, wow, like, this woman's awesome. Like, that's that's what Tess was hoping Catherine would be, and it, it didn't turn out that way. So Tess just knows that she's been where the secretary is, and she's not going to be like that other boss like Catherine she's going to be smart and do her job but that she's going to treat people with respect and that's that's just a cool thing to see about this film and that character is the growth because we are from a girl who was very meek soft-spoken too trustworthy 
And even though she still trusts people, it's now she's in control of that trust. Like, she doesn't have to worry about... That's a really good analysis. Yeah. So, you know, we saw her kind of transform throughout the movie, even when she took over the idea of while Catherine was away, she was going to change her look, change the way she presented herself. And it just, yeah, she just wasn't going to be... Because she'd already been through the ring. She wasn't going to be a doormat anymore. Right. She was going to really stand up for her own ideas. And even when it blew up in her face, you know, it's also got the true love kind of thing because of Jack and, and Tess. But it blew up in her face. Excuse me. And then Jack still had feelings. And he still really, because he saw how she worked. They had worked together for like two weeks on a on a project, and he's like, well, I think she's it was not like, incapable. She's she's a smart girl, right? And, it's and twofold. She's a sweet girl. One, she wasn't just jumping right into bed with him, Mm-mm. not by choice. Uh, the second thing was, like you said, she was a hard worker. So whenever, like, even though he thought the wedding crashing was a bit crazy. He saw how she handled it. And he thought it was like he's brilliant. Like, you're 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 crazy. You're you're But it was smart and he was appreciative that she was so innovative in that sense that it wasn't like they went in there busting down the door and talking to trash like it was a business, you know, at first I they think they were dancing with uh, family members. Right. But she went into the bathroom and, and saw the bride. She, and he, well she went into the bathroom and he follows her into the ladies' room. And then he's the he goes to the bathroom and the bride comes in and the bride's like crying because she's like, "Is it too much? My my husband says it reminds him of Nicaragua and we're being insensitive." And she's like, "No, no, it's beautiful. It's very tropical." And then uh, Harrison Ford finishes peeing and comes out and <laughs> yeah, it's just. I hadn't watched it in a while, and it was good. It was a good day to me, for me to watch it. It was a good, like, feeling to watch it. And one thing we haven't mentioned is the um, title song is by Carly Simon, one of my favorite female singers, and it's the song... Let, yes, you do. <laughs> let, let the River Run, but she won the, um, the Grammy for the original song. And this is like 88, and she was, you know, mostly a 70s person, but she kept on, you know. So, I am very, very pleased with this movie. I always have loved it, and my... I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm going to find it something I'm going to watch like a lot, but I was actually pleasantly surprised how good it was. Well, I mean, we would hope with all these, like, huge stars but we've seen huge stars tanking movies the spirit spirit. (laughs) Um, i uh i mean there are some problems with the way that the editing and script was but that's not i think that's just a budget thing i don't think that because again despite like at that point i think sigourney weaver and harrison were probably the biggest stars in the film uh, compared to everyone else, because mm-hmm. we all know them now, but like at the time, yeah, it's I like, think this is after Star Wars, after Indiana Jones, Jones, right? After Alien, right? So like now, even after Alien, so like we knew who or Ghostbusters, we knew who mm-hmm. Weaver was and Harrison Ford, but 
you know, now you're kind of changing gears for all of them because they're coming from action stuff to like a rom-com. And so, yeah, so I mean, it was a good film. And I think that. Uh, what I thought was funny, though, when I was like, we can watch The Devil Wears Prada or um, Working Girl. And you're like, is Working Girl the one where Harrison Ford is up in the hot air balloon? And I'm like, I don't think so. So. Maybe, like, five or six years ago, he did this movie called Morning Glory with Rachel McAdams, who's another one of my favorite actresses, and he's old Harrison Ford, old crotchety, and I was like, I think you're thinking of Morning Glory. Yeah, because, I, you know, I hadn't seen Harrison in too many rom-coms. Anywho. I am really happy that we watched this, and I'm actually very, I've been very happy today. This is a good day. Today was a good day. It was. This is going to be a good weekend. All right, back into our music. Music. Got some killing coming up. New stuff from them. Sodom, Rectify. But here's some classic stuff from Mindless Sinner, Live and Die. <laughs>
this side, we have some widely contrasting examples taken from recent recordings to give you some idea of the wealth of recorded music now available on the wider tapestry of stereophonic sound. Thank you. 
Zobo with the Bandy Thorn. You're listening to the Hordes of Chaos only on Metal Tavern Radio. Pump it.
Weekend lover boy, good stuff there. Want to thank all of you for tuning in this week. Hope you all enjoyed the topics and the music. Oh, is it already over? It's already over. Oh, Four and a half, five hours later. <laughs> well, we had a lot of good topics, so that's part of it. So, uh, I have some interesting things we'll get to next podcast. Uh, we will have to try to get our 90s shit squared away, which I haven't finished yet or even begun, but that's a wise way. Well, you know we might know. even have an interview with Buffalo Bill. The man, the curator behind the Buffalo Bill house. Yeah, we're hoping to get that hooked up, so we'll see how that goes. Anywho, we appreciate all the support, obviously. Hope you all enjoyed it. And we are going to go have... A good Friday and then good weekend. So I know. I'm really excited. Like maybe it's because I know what's gonna be happening after the weekend. But <laughs> I um I really have come because you know how my brain works. Like I always play out like a thousand different scenarios in my brain and like honestly I feel like one thing that you said to me was like it's your happiness is is the most important thing and, and i'm starting to really believe these things because granted like there are lots of important things in life there's you know we got to be able to pay bills and we got it but we have had like some shit luck before and we're still standing mm-hmm. like and if anything has taught me anything in this last year because it's now september and this time last year, I was on a ship heading toward France, and less than a week later, I was leaving, coming home to take care of my mother, be at her side at the hospital while she started her battle with leukemia. It's important to do what you want to do, and if something, like, if something is not working in your life, you don't have to apologize for it not working. You need to make your life the way that you want it. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, we, you and I, we always are kind of, like, on the same wavelength. And there are two things. I, I always, I've been joking with him the last month. I'm like, there's two things that 
you always can hold over my head that you were right and I was wrong. And you're like, oh, thank you for two things. But <laughs> one of the things was buying this piece of shit house. Like, there are many Yeah, but you know, it's coming together now, so I'm not as angry about it. No. Even three years ago, though, you were like, I didn't realize that, because remember I was, like, paying, paying, like, the back mortgage. You're like, we should have just fucking left. And I'm like, yes. Honestly... I would if we're, we've put a lot of effort and work into it. I probably am going to stay here a few more years, but we are on the lookout for the perfect. I said it had to be the perfect place. We're not moving unless it's the perfect place. Number two was when I left my old job. You told me it was not a good idea, and you were right. Yeah. A hundred percent. All right. Well, hopefully. Those things will work out. Should work out. Anywho, we'll bid you all farewell. Enjoy the rest of your evening. This is Dark Age with Viper. And we'll see you next time.